With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you could, kind of give me the uh, the synopsis of, of the Canadian military as it relates to what most people would think about it. They either think it's non-existent. Uh, they think that we are normally UN they don't think that we have a fighting force, which we kind of found out in Afghanistan how much of a fighting force we did have. How long was that deployment? How long, how long were you in that area? So I was on an operation for a solid one fucking week that went haywire. It came down that they needed um, some female CSTs to go with the British out into the Panjwa district. We had zeroed weapons when we, I don't even know if we zeroed when we got in country, but my sergeant was like, we got a zero. We need to go over to the range and at least get you sorted out. And he looked at like, the basic C7 rifle we have. And he's like, this isn't gonna fly. You're going into tighter spaces. You're gonna need a better scope. You're gonna need something. So he stripped his weapon, tacked mine out, and then just started handing me magazines. And he's just like, take them. And I was like, I, we have enough. He's like, take fucking every one I've got. I would rather you have more than not enough. When we were at the FOB before, my sergeant brought me into the comms tent and he showed me a map. And he said, you're gonna go here. I said, cool. And he was like, don't be excited. The first time we started, we actually started getting like rounds coming down range to us that I realized I was not ready to go anywhere, <laughs> but I, I loved it. And I was, I wasn't like afraid of it. I, I wanted, I wanted more after that. I didn't ever think I was going to get to do anything cool in my life. I never thought I'd get to actually support. Um, but after that week, we just kept, just kept getting fucking everywhere we go. We were getting shot at. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. She served four years on active duty, or what we call a one-tour wonder in Canada, with the Canadian Army Artillery and CST for the British Army. She was then medically retired, which we will absolutely get into. She is the CEO and boss bitch, can we say that, yep. of Brass and Unity, as well as the host of the Same Name podcast. She's the most polite, well-mannered, trained killer, A, <clears throat> hailing from the cool loft party above America that we call Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Kelsey Sheeran. Thanks for having I, did me. Did I pronounce your uh, last name? You right? actually did. I'm real proud of you that for right? that. How do most people fuck it up? Sharon. Is that right? Or sh- Yeah, Sharon? it's never like, Sharon. Like Ed Sheeran? Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Is there a, there's no relation, though. No, not at all. It's my uh, husband's Jewish side of the family. It used to be Cheratnik. And then I think they thought it was much easier for people to say. And what we, did your name tape in the military say? Oh, I was Burns. All right. Yeah. You're just fucking chameleon, I guess, huh? Yeah, we move all around. Right. All right. 
what is the most stereotypical Canadian thing about the Canadian military? That we use maple syrup to fix all things. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a handful. Uh, some are shocked that we have a military. Yeah. They're like Canadian military where? Uh, but for the most part, it's uh, we don't really have too many different things than you. We just have a s substantially smaller military and we don't have Marines Yeah. or Navy SEALs. We what just have JTF too. I mean, I've worked with some of the Kansoff guys. They're uh, mm -hmm. absolutely legit super legit guys they were really professional and just good good hard dudes i was really surprised you know who devin Larratt is uh, i know his name i've never met him though yeah i want to have him on but uh yeah he seems like a really cool guy he yeah. did um he did lex right after me yeah he's the guy with the big arms yeah he's the yeah, yeah. guy but he was in uh canadian special forces that's right yeah but, uh, he'd, he'd be good to have on i think he's going to come down uh, this summer but. oh fantastic yeah um if you could kind of give me the uh, the synopsis of, of the Canadian military as it relates to what most people would think about it. Ooh, they either think it's non-existent. Uh, they think that we are normally UN. So that's another big thing is they, they don't think that we have a fighting force, which it, we kind of found out in Afghanistan how much of a fighting force we did have. And that was a real big transition because I'm not... I'm not sure exactly what year we switched from more of the UN to the ISAF. I want to say it was around 06, 07, 08. And that is when Canada kind of showed up in a different way. So for us, it was, we've always kind of been the peacekeeping. We've always kind of been the background. We just go with the flow. We participate in the wars after you start them. And then we come in and help uh, fix the problems. So that's, that's normally what Canada's known for. Is that uh, kind of the, the general consensus for, for most people? Uh, the, that's how they feel about it from Canada? From Canadian standpoint, it's really interesting because being a Canadian vet, um, I actually had an experience happen a couple weeks ago. Uh, this big dude walked into my office out of the blue. We keep an open door policy for all vets and first responders to come hang out or just chat. And this guy walks in and he looked like a freight train. So I'm like, well, you've done something. And um, he said, you know, we, he ended up being a guy that worked on the Hill. So he's a JTF2 guy. And uh, he goes, you know, we don't really have any community out here on the West Coast of Canada. Um, I did a beer call last year and one guy showed up. And I mean, you would think there would be more. So for us, we don't really have uh, a large, uh, close community. We don't have a ton of events like you guys do. If you look at our military or our retired military, you're kind of looking at a more East Coast um, that's where, you know, the capital, it is, the capital is. And then you've got a few odd bases throughout it. So in terms of Canada, if you ask somebody, say, in Alberta, what they think of the military, you're going to get a, probably a stronger sense of a military presence because that's a combat arms base. But if you look at somebody um, from the far east or kind of in the middle, it's there's few and far between. There's not we don't have a lot like you guys do. Yeah. Is uh, is the the support for the military Canadian wide uh, similar to, to how it is in the United no. States, or it's not not as supportive? Or it's no. We now I'm just shitting on Canada, um, <laughs> which I've been doing recently. Not the Canadian people; it's just the Canadian government I'm shitting on. Um, but no, we we have a really really solid military. But the thing is, everybody in America seems like they're one person separated from a military member, whether it's a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister, whatever. You all have someone or I love my favorite when you come down to the South. It's like, do you have any military in your family? Uh, my family served in the Civil War. Like they go all the way back and it's a whole thing for us. It's we're not I didn't find out I had a military member in my family until I started writing a book. And that was only a couple of years ago. So we didn't there weren't those types of conversations. And when I joined the military, 
I was the only one from the town. I was the only one from the high school. It's, it's not like it is here. First off, that's a pretty good Southern accent. I mean, I try real hard. Number one, you spent some time in the South. I spent some time. Yeah. We come down as much as we possibly can. We try to be currently away from Canada if we can to just get like a, a reprieve from the pressure. And, um, I served with Americans, so yeah. I was lucky enough to be around them. And then my parents were long haul truck drivers. So I was in the States a lot with my yeah. dad driving around. Yeah, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, from a, from kind of going back to that, that support thing. Um, and I know you, there's kind of a distinction between the government and, and the people, but um, governmentally, I know Trudeau has been there for a while and mm-hmm. I know I, I don't particularly care for him. I'm curious to get your take, but also <laughs> Like from a from a policy <laughs> standpoint, I, I guess maybe I don't need to get your take. Uh, but you know, is is the not not just the support, but I guess the the way that they um, use the military and and kind of um, you know from a logistics standpoint to a pay standpoint, benefits you know our, mm-hmm. our version of the VA, uh, those types of things is is the government severely lacking uh, in terms of taking care of the Canadian oh military? severely lacking I, I often make jokes about it and i try to because at some point you got to make jokes or you cry right so for us we have a very similar outlook uh, as your va does with individuals it's very much uh in the early t- um early times around like afghan iraq time like if you were a soldier and you said something was wrong like there was no we'll fix you and keep you in and keep progressing and you know we'll work on that it's you're broken get out yeah and so we're, we're very much the same in how we handle things we highly over medicate um canada now has given up a very substantial amount of the va um not claims but responsibility to uh, an insurance company called manulife insurance oh, okay. and they they have a habit of sending pis to follow you around they did it to me really uh, yeah um because if they if they feel like they're paying you for something, they're going to find out if they're paying you or you're being fraudulent, but they have a, they have a tendency to do it to combat vets. And because all of us that served from Canada, the majority of the combat vets, they're the ones that were substantially injured. So they're no longer in. So they have to use these benefits. And when they use these benefits, the government hands it over to somebody like an insurance company. They're going to, they're going to be different. They're going to go about it differently. They're going to be stupid and send a PI to follow somebody around who maybe already deals with paranoia, maybe has a weapon, maybe doesn't like to be followed and is already on edge. So they're putting themselves in a dangerous position, but they are severely lacking. Um, I know at one point, and it went quite viral, there was an individual who stood up, his name is Brock, um, he's an amputee, and he asked Trudeau, you know, in a town hall publicly, I just, I'm just trying to get a new limb. Like I just need some support. And Trudeau straight to his face said, you're asking for too much. Oh shit. Yeah. And then he paid a, um, a terrorist uh, that we enacted. So there was a terrorism situation. His, apparently they won by saying his rights were violated because the, he wasn't get read the rights properly. I think I remember hearing $10.4 million came from the veteran fund and went to him. So they'll spend money on, on hiring people to follow you guys around, but not, Absolutely. not give you benefits. That's fucking absurd. Absolutely. Is there anybody in the military that likes Trudeau? I mean, are there not in the military? If you ask the rest of Canada, because they, they slow drip CBC and CTV and global, um, which are run by the, um, any, whatever the administration is, they hold the cards to the Canadian media. And that's not conspiratorial that they've straight out came up and said that Christmas this year, they said, you know, we, we've been tracking 33 million phones and they giggled about it and no one stopped it. So they're, they, they do a good slow drip. They make, um, they make you 
they indoctrinate real well. And then you kind of sit back and wonder why people are still putting up with the way that he's uh, running the country. But then you kind of, you have to take a step back and go, oh, I see how it's, it's slow tactics. It's small drips. It's, you know, but if you ask anybody, anybody who's been in the military or the veteran community, especially during the protest, they're not having any of this. They all can see it because they're all, you know, they're all trained to say, this is how we do things. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a, I mean, obviously there's enough support for him to continue to get reelected. Well, here's the thing. It's real weird in Canada. So there's ridings just like there are in your States. Right. But by the time he has the seats in some of the biggest ridings in Canada. So by the time we actually voted this year, it was called our vote. Like half the votes didn't need to even be counted. Um, and then what's the point? So he, he's got his hands where he needs to have them. And then he just partnered with the NDP overnight in a very quiet deal, which will allow him to keep pushing his agenda even when he's not there. But he said he wants to run after 2025. Is, are there term limits for? Uh, no, really? No, we just fucking just keep all the way through run it. Is there, is there um, like you talking like this, if, if this is aired in Canada or people watch it in Canada, is there more or less of a uh, concern on your end from a, a censorship standpoint? Oh, we're super censored, highly censored. I've that, been very public about it. How does that work? Well, it's probably why you haven't heard it because it's coming from within Canada. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, things have changed recently with um, during COVID for Canada. We had a lot of changeover in terms of our bills. We had the wartime enacted. Um, we're currently fighting for at least a handful of our section of charter of rights that have been taken from us, which is like taking your constitutional rights. It's our charter. They're being violated. Um, there's uh, massive lawsuits. So there's a section called B bill C 11 and bill C 18. And what it covers is your air, the airwaves, the radio waves, the internet, social media, the government of Canada can now come in and remove information, block information and block websites. Mm -hmm. So we got a notification from YouTube. I think it was a couple weeks ago, just letting us know, like, this is now a real thing. So they do censor us. We have been censored. We found out, we've talked to people that know to make sure that we're not just going, we're shadow banned. No, we're super <laughs> fucking shadow banned. Yeah. Um, but that's, it's not just us though. It's pretty much anybody in, I would say our community, the veteran first responder, people who are a little more empathetic to the, I don't want to say the military side of the world, but, um, or what people go through, anybody who's like that is being hit hard. There's yeah. veteran communities in Canada that are being absolutely smacked down and just crushed. Wow. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Well, we're about 10 steps ahead. I, I know I want to get into that and in some of the, no, the trucker it. riots and stuff. But uh, one thing I'm curious about, like going back to kind of the, the Canadian stereotype military wise, um, what's the best Canadian military food? Oh. Is there such a thing? No. Does it suck? It's not as, no, yours are worse. Your MRAs are so much worse. Uh, the British are even worse than that. Yeah. We've got pretty good ones. I mean, we we get the odd time we would get uh, like Kit Kat bars, like small ones um, and things like that. One of my favorite ones that we did have though, I want to say 
it was the, everyone thinks it was disgusting, but I liked it because it was a family favorite, but goulash. I was, that one was solid. <laughs> I could eat that all day. Them and their like peanut butter packs and like those weird loaves of bread that are like compressed down. It's like a whole loaf of bread compressed yeah. into one tiny little thing. I mean, it's like, uh, have you had the chili mac? I haven't. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the same okay. same shit, but uh, the, the new MREs are pretty good. The ones back like when I first came in were pretty terrible, but they have some now that uh, that aren't too bad. But, you know, m- music is a big... Uh, big inspiration and a big part of my life i listen to it all the time whether i'm driving riding a motorcycle working out walking uh what have you and one of the things that uh you know frustrates me regularly is getting a good pair of you know headphones that that have a high quality sound that are easy to use um you know but that don't cost a fortune um i've recently partnered with uh with raycon and uh i really really like these these wireless headphones they're bluetooth uh, they're everyday earbuds. They look, feel, and sound better than ever, uh, and they're half the price or even less than a lot of uh, other brands that uh, that are popular out there. So, um, I've been using them now for a couple of weeks. The <clears throat> battery life is really good. It uh, has 32 hours of standby time and, and eight hours of play time, which I have tested. Um, you know, I've used them all day long, basically, and and not had to re recharge. And they come in a rechargeable case. They don't take long to charge to begin with, uh, and they, they sound great. They're super comfortable, uh, and they're just really good. And uh, I want to extend this uh, call to action for you guys. Mic drop listeners can get 15% off of the Raycon order uh, at buyraycon.com slash mic drop. That's buyraycon.com slash mic drop, and you save 15% on an already uh, very reasonably priced uh, set of wireless earphones. That's buyraycon.com slash mic drop. Um, what, uh, what part of Canada are you originally from? So I'm originally from the East Coast. I'm from Ontario. I'm um, not far outside. I'm from a small town called Campbellford. It's not far from the Trenton Air Base, yeah. where uh, Russell Williams, the serial killer that ran the Canadian Air Base, is from. <laughs> so that's our claim to fame and the yeah. Toonie. We designed that from our town, but I'm from a real small farm town. Okay. Yeah. What, uh, what is your morning routine? morning routine for me right now well we have a five-year-old so he's up um so he is your morning routine. he is the morning routine so we try to get up um, my husband's more consistent with it he gets up he works out i get up we make him breakfast we get ready for school off we go and into the office we go and we kind of hit that pretty good um that's just because he's starting kindergarten and we're working on getting a good solid routine in the morning but that kid's up at four like between four and five every day like a psychopath yeah <laughs> Do you, uh, do you work out first thing in the morning? I haven't been lately. I did TBI treatment recently. Oh, okay. Um, so we did that. But for the most part, if it comes to working out, if I'm honest, I'm more of a road biker and I like to do things for extended periods of time. Yeah. And so doing something for like 30 minutes is harder for me to get going. I'll do it. I'll get it moving, get the body going. Um, but I like to do long rides. So the way we have our schedule worked out is we have one, our, my husband and I give each other one day a week where there's no child. There's no husband. It's you go do you, whatever it is that you're going to do. And then I just, those days I hit it really, really hard. If I'm going to go on a road bike, I go on long rides. I plan it out. I try to go on the paddleboard the same day. I try to compress as much as I can. And then throughout the week, try to hit small goals and small things in there. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you find that your experience of working with, uh, some of the American forces versus being in Canada from like a PT standpoint, uh, is there a big difference between the two forces? Like, well, f- for me, I was really lucky because uh, my Sarge, Sarge LeBlanc, he's an officer now and I refuse to call him by that rank. Um, he was adamant 
persistent. And before I even joined the military, I, I was a Taekwondo fighter for my entire life. I played rugby. I was always very, very active. And so fitness is incredibly important, not only for the, obviously the mental health and now understanding about the, you know, four times more effective than an antidepressant and the consistency of that. Um, but in terms of fitness, we were on it. Like when I was at the, as soon as we got to the regiment, it was like, we were doing 10 Ks every other day. I don't, seven miles. Um, and then we would be doing, we'd be ball hockey for another hour and then we'd go do lift weights or, but my sergeant was incredibly adamant that anybody that's running the guns, we are doing something every day, whether you liked it or not. Yeah. yeah. Did you play hockey growing up? I didn't play hockey. Um, I'm glad I didn't now, now understanding the head injury side, but I did, uh, I did Taekwondo. So I got knocked out consistently. Yeah and uh, rugby. Did you compete with that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. 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 I fought um, at the national level there for a long time and then uh, had plans to take it further. And then my coach decided he would derail that with a 14 year old. Oh, is that right? Oh yeah. You want to get into that? No, we can get it whenever you want. (laughs) I'm here for you. I don't know if I want to get into that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Did you ever, have you ever used Taekwondo in a street fight? No, because who the hell uses Taekwondo in a street fight? So, I mean, so the the next natural question then is kind of what's the point? I did it. I started when I was four. So my mom saw it. Um, my mom saw it, uh, at a mall, you know, when they do the demonstrations and they're like kicking boards and stuff. Yeah. And, um, so I did soccer and all of that. And then she was like, you know, I saw this, do you want to try it? And I was like, sure. As soon as I got into it for me, it was the discipline aspect. It was the, the constant learning and improving and getting better and becoming a perfectionist at something. And and once you're good at something, you can pass that on and teaching and being in that community. That was more of a community aspect for me. That kind of hit a dead hard stop when everything went sideways for me. And that's when like anger issues started and all that fun (laughs) stuff as a teenager. So um, I got back into fighting though, when I joined the military and started doing stuff with uh, SISM and things like that. Yeah. You did the, were you on the SISM team? I didn't get on the team. I did it. I went out for SISM right before we deployed and then yeah. I deployed and came back yeah. and then everything went haywire. That's interesting. What, what are the odds? I was on the SISM team back in 2001. Oh really? For the, uh, or for the American military. Just yeah. not Taekwondo, something useful. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, what is it? Um, their O course is pretty, pretty worthless. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the rowing of the boat is completely worthless. Yeah. Yeah, the shackle stuff underwater is uh, is dangerous and useless. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that I was in the best shape of my life probably then. Yeah, that, uh, we were working out like six hours a day. But I ended up tearing my uh, tearing my groin uh, right before we were supposed to go to um, where was it? Uh, Istanbul was uh, was where the the games were at that year, and so I I didn't get to go and compete. But but the the thing is with the military too is if you can do I know you guys are. The United States is way different when it comes to this. Like you guys have people join and that's all they do. Yeah. Like they fight or they're boxers or they do whatever for, for the military. And that would have been a pretty sweet gig. I yeah. feel like if I could have stuck that out, but the yeah. deployment kind of gets in the way of yeah. that. Yeah. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah Woo-hoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, all right. So you're from Ontario. Yep. Um, if you could kind of talk about um, just your, your childhood generally speaking, siblings, sports, uh, the overall experience. Yeah, no, for me, when I was younger, I always had a very, uh, 
my mom and dad were very I'll say strict, but my dad was a long haul truck driver. So he was gone on the road. And uh, so it was my mom, my mom, my brother and I, and uh, she did a damn good job of making sure we were in as many activities as possible. She was at every event, every fight. She never missed, she never missed anything. Um, and she made it so that we were always like, if we started something, we finished it. And there was, she used to cut, I've told this story before, but she used to cut out the word can't of the dictionary. Like she came from a old school Hungarian like family where it was like, if you're gonna do it, you do it. And so for me, I, that was instilled really, really early on. And so once I kind of had that with Taekwondo, I, I went all in, I would train in the morning before school. I would train after school. I was there on the weekends. I lived with my coaches. I put everything into it. Yeah. Um, and I had a, I have a younger brother. He's uh, two years younger than me. He's a, um, he's a welder and he's a crane operator now. And he's, uh, he's in Ontario too, but he played, um, he played football and all of that lovely stuff. We didn't have football. Like you guys have football. It was more like participation football. <laughs> Cause we're not really sure how to coach it. Um, and, uh, he started racing motocross fairly young and then um, he got pretty good early on. And then we kind of went our separate, I don't say separate ways, but dad went with him. I did Taekwondo with mom and then we kind of met in the middle and then I started racing motocross and was not very good at it and just hit a lot of things <laughs> and crashed a lot. Um, so we did that a lot. And then at about, once the whole thing with the coach happened, um, it really did, I don't think people understand how that works. Like there's a lot of that talk in the martial arts world, like, cause you're really, co you know, you're really close with your coaches. All these things can happen in any industry, but when it happened, it like derailed a significant amount of people's lives in terms of, sure. you know, competition, trust and all of that. So I didn't have that for all of high school. So I switched over to being a very angry teenager and got into rugby and started smashing faces instead. It felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Is that uh, your inner Avril Levine? poking through or what a little more angry than yeah. that um <laughs> the idea was to break as many noses like yeah. straight just straight arm people um i did that in high school and one of the last games i end up tearing my eyelid off jesus it was an exhibition exhibition game and the idea of somebody like winning even though yeah. it was pretend just doesn't exist in my book yeah yeah what uh so i mean can you explain rub rugby for uh for the layman i, I still don't really understand oh it's perfect works. you'll get it yeah. it's like um when an American doesn't want to be a pussy and then they take their helmet off and play the same game. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I actually think, uh, I mean, uh, to me, the, I think the biggest reason why there's so many head injuries in football is because of the helmet. Helmets are garbage you know? the way that they do it. And it's also compression, right? Yeah. My husband owns a neck brace company. Oh, sure. So I've, yeah, he's the CEO of Atlas neck brace. Oh, so cool. yeah, he was a professional supercross racer. He's all cool on his own. He does his own thing. Um, but he, uh, I've learned a lot about compression injuries and the neck and the helmets. Cause he also designs helmets. So yeah. I've learned a lot about how those work and the NFL has never improved or tried to, to make it any better. They've just kept going along with it and then hoped that the head injuries kind of dissipate or disappear, better treatments come up for them. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of switching over to rugby after mm -hmm. the incident with your coach, uh, I guess first was, was there not any, any issues between your coach? Like, did he, so he never to... tried with me. It was my, it was my training partner. So, okay. um, she was two years older than me. I was 12 when it started. Uh, we didn't know about it. I talk about it publicly. I, I don't say names. Um, he's out of prison now. He's got a family and kids and, um, individual she's doing great and has her own life. And so, what was frustrating to me was finding out later on that people knew about it and let it go on. Mm. Um, he was married to a world champion. 
she was one of my coaches as well. They had a young daughter. I lived at their place temporarily when I was, you know, training. He never pulled any of that with me. There was nothing, not even a, people ask me that now. They're like, well, did he? No, didn't like, listen. I looked like a 12 year old boy. I was flat chested. My hair was this short. Taekwondo was it. You couldn't tell me anything else. Um, So there was no attempt there at all, but people knew and it went on for two years. And that's what really bothered me. And then when I found out later that people knew, I was angry. It was that like built up anger as in like, you knew that so many of us were training to do big things with this and really wanted to go, wanted to go the distance. Like the goal from when I was like seven on was like Olympics, 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 Olympics. That's all I could think about. Um, And it helped me focus in school. It helped me keep myself on the right track. It kept myself out of bullying and all that bullshit. But it was devastating. It was soul crushing. It took the, I didn't realize until I started doing treatment after the military for that injury, how much that affected the way I was, how I developed, what I chose to do with my life, my stubbornness, my anger, all of that. And you kind of look back and you're like, Oh, okay. I get it now. Did your, uh, did that going through that, did that change your dad's behavior towards you and his line of work at all? No, my dad had always been, uh, when I used to go with him in the transport, my dad was always very like, hold my hand when we go into the bathrooms. You don't, I don't leave you outside. You don't go in alone. You don't do that because you're, you're in these random truck stops all over the place. And it it was always a real fear for me. And I had this, I don't know if it was because every time I was with them or traveling, they would always be like, don't leave our side. Don't leave our side. So I had this innate fear that I was going to be kidnapped because I did look like a small, small 12 year old boy. I think at the, the national, my national weight class, I was fighting with 70.4 pounds. So I was very tiny. I guess I'm just putting myself in his shoes. Like if. Oh, he was an angry. He was very angry. Well, I just, I mean, like if, if I found out that, you know, I had a 12 year old daughter that their, their coach was pulling that shit with another teammate, like that yeah. would probably change how, how I did a few things. I thing. feel like coming from you, there'd be a little more violence because you have the <laughs> capability to impose such violence on one and then also make it. It didn't happen, but my dad definitely didn't have that and him not being home. But I do know like from what I was told, so whether it's accurate or not, you know, it seemed like her family was somewhat conscious of it, which makes me that much more angry about it. Uh, What what would you say the percentage of time that your dad was gone uh, throughout the year? Like how many days a year? Well, he would be back. He, he would be back at, you know, every, every other week. Sometimes at the longest trips, he'd be gone two weeks. Um, it just really depended, but it, it was, he was always checking in on the payphone, Always, 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 um, always on the phone with us. And so it didn't feel weird. It didn't feel different. It was just like, oh, dad's gone. Dad's on the road. Dad's on the road. It was yeah. no big deal. Looking back on it now, do you, do you feel like um, that, that shortchanged you at all? Or do you feel like it uh, had a positive impact? No, I don't think it shortchanged me at all. Because I think if you look at it from this standpoint, I'm kind of glad because I don't know that my parents would still be married. Really? Yeah. Um, just the way that they both communicate, like now it's really funny with their kids grown up, they actually team drive together. Mm. So they're in the same truck 24 seven driving each other, driving each other fucking nuts. And they've got their dogs and they do their thing. But I think it made, it made things, I don't want to say more difficult or easier. I think it, I don't know any different, but I did know that when my dad was there, it was dad time. It's dad's time. We spent time with dad and um, mom was always obviously really happy because she was like, get the fuck, get them away from me. Like, just give them, give me a minute. And um, he he was always very present when he was home. 
And he was always out in the shop tinkering with something. So it was, it was never like he was in the house sitting on the couch. He was like, I'm home now. It was like, we're in the woods. We're cutting and splitting wood because that's how we used to heat the house or we sell cords of wood. So it was always go cut the grass with dad. Go do this with dad. We were always moving, always doing something outside. Yeah, no, it sounds good. The, yeah. uh, would you say that now your relationship with both parents is, is solid? Yeah, we're getting there. Like I had a really good relationship up until last year and then we had an incident and I kind of, I've done so much damn therapy <laughs> for over 10 years that I, I learned boundaries. And it was the first time I kind of, in, you know, really put those boundaries into play and said, listen, this is what I need. And if you can't have, if it can't be this way, then we need a break. And so we took a little break and then we recently kind of came back to it. And there was a real deep understanding of like, no more fucking around. Like if we're going to be in each other's life, it's got to be a positive. It can't be a, there can be, I don't want to say negative. We can have hard times. We can have all those things. It's about how you choose to go through those dark times and those hard things and how you talk about them. But if you're, woe is me, the world fucking sucks. I don't want to hear it every three seconds. Let me tell you how we can make it better. And if you don't want to take those tools, then that's on you, but I'm not going to be the sounding board for your bullshit. And so not that they were like that all the time, but I just, I insert my boundaries now and I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I feel like they understand, I understand, and everybody's on the same page. So is that what the boundary was? Basically just told them to stop fucking whining? No, because I think everybody can whine. And I think more than ever, uh, with the change in how everything was going and then with the truckers and everything like that, there was this, there is a big change in Canada. There is a big change in who gets the jobs. There is a big change in how, you know, adapt or die is what it feels like a bit it seems like it's an older profession. And so there's different struggles in that, but there's always been those same struggles in that industry. And so I'm just the type of person now where I don't hold punches. I will tell you if I think that you're not trying, I'll tell you if I think that you can do better. And if you want the tools to do better, I'll help you do that. But if you don't, I can only take so much of this. Yeah. 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 No, I'm tracking. Uh, so things are a little bit back to normal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're definitely there now. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, so back to high school, when you, uh, at what point did you kind of decide, okay, I'm an angry, pissed off teenager. Uh, I want to join the military. What was that kind of uh, I, path? I didn't. I, uh, I ended up going to college in Ottawa. I went to Algonquin College for like a second and a half. I wanted to get out of the small town I was in. I just never, we had moved at that point to that town and I did the last two years of high school. I did my whole life at a Catholic school. And then I did my last two years at this public school and I just didn't mesh 
didn't mesh. My attitude didn't mesh with people well. And um, I just didn't want to be there anymore. I didn't know what I wanted either, though. Um, I was always a very A-type personality, always tried to lead, always tried to do those types of jobs. But I didn't ever see the military as a position or somewhere that I would want to even go down. Because like I said, I just found out I had a military like member in my family recently. Um, so I ended up going to Algonquin College on like a travel and tourism program. I don't even know what that means. So I went there, uh, started the program, and then it was uh, on November 11th, so Veterans Day, so Remembrance Day for us. I always go to the ceremonies, and Ottawa has the biggest one because it's the capital. I was on a bus, met a lady on a bus. Literally met a lady on a bus, and it, like, a, like I think she was World War II. She was <clears throat> old as hell, but she was telling me this crazy story about herself, and I just felt a a switch, something weird. It's hard to describe, but it was like, when you look back at your life and you're able to chart points, you're able to often see where the turn was or the, the big catalyst moment was. She was that. I got off the bus, told my colleges, like professors, I'm done. This isn't going to work for me. I went down to the recruiter's office and I requested paperwork and joined the military. Really? Yeah. What, uh, what was the time frame from when you decided to do that and, and sign to when you actually went to boot camp? Oh my God, it was so fast. <laughs> so we went, uh, November, did that, did the paperwork. They warned us. They When we went in, they gave me like a fair warning. They said, first off, they said, what did you want to do? And I said, I wanted to be infantry. And they laughed. Um, and I said, okay, cool. And they said, come back, take a look at these other jobs. They're dagged red. We need people for them. So it was armored, inf infantry, and artillery were the ones they were really pulling for. Because that's when we started we started really rotating out combat arm stuff. Um, and they're like, we're in, just want to make you aware we're in an active war and you will be deployed if you go in one of these jobs. I was like, okay. I was 18. So, okay. What um, year was this? Uh, this was in the end of 2007. Okay. Yeah. So then we, I went through the process. I came in, did the paperwork. I said, okay, well I'll go artillery. They're like, okay. So I signed up uh, a couple weeks later. I, I swore in, I was in basic training no later than January 8th. Mm. Yeah. And what was the, um, the initial kind of feeling or, or vibe that you got when you showed up compared to say, you know, I guess the, the pop culture representation of the United States military's boot camps uh, and in movies and, and such, uh, how, how is the Canadian experience? Uh, how does it compare? Well, they yell and scream just as much. So you walk in the door and then they just start yelling at you. So that's great. And then they put you in a room and they just give you your packet and you kind of wait for the rest of whoever's going to be in your group to roll in. And then you go from there and then they just, it's, you spend a full week in civilian clothes, walking around the base, learning how to march like a bunch of idiots. And you're, you're, you can tell you're the new people. Yeah. Um, and so they're just yelling and we actually got a, a French. Yeah. We had, our instructors were all French. And so we were an English unit and a lot of them didn't speak a lot of English. So it was a That's real, yeah. <laughs> Are there all French speaking units in the Canadian? Yeah, I was posted to one. Oh shit. Yeah. What, uh, so what is the, I guess the, the overall length of it and, and what did you take away from boot camp? Uh, both what you expected versus what you got out of it. So for when we went into, when we went into training, it was, I think it's 12 or 13 weeks. I don't remember exactly the number because we, you would wear the, the number the week you were on. And then I think the last week you wore a G for graduating. So I can't remember. Um, I really enjoyed it at first. I, I didn't hate it. I needed to be reminded it was a mind game. So I, when I went in, I remember there was a moment when we were learning how to roll socks and they lined us up just to yell at us. And for whatever reason, I just started hyperventilating just out of the blue. Like I, nothing had happened, but I just, uh, uh, one of these. And uh, it was the, 
one of the master bombardiers walked me around the side and he just looked at me and he goes, listen, Burns, listen, listen, shh, listen, <laughs> listen. Don't worry, it's not, it's fine. It's just a mind game. Just calm yeah. down, it's no big deal. We're just going to yell, we'll yell, and then you move on. It's so, be over. This isn't your whole life. You sound like George St. Pierre. Yeah, it's because <laughs> I was posted to a French unit. That's fucking classic. Yeah, so no, it was, it, once I realized, like once I kind of turned that mindset on, then it became, how do I just be the best at everything? How do I beat every other person? How do I beat every other woman? How do I just, how do I beat you at everything physical? Because I may not have been the tallest. I may not have been um, maybe the smartest in terms of the testing. But if you said, we're going to run, I was going to run. But if you tell me we're going to carry this, I'm going to carry this. I'm just going to shut my mouth and it's going to suck, but I'm going to do it. And then I got yeah. real competitive. Yeah. Was yeah. it, uh, were the units co-ed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. From a birthing standpoint, they separate them though? We don't separate at all. Really? No. So is there a bunch of fuck fuck games going on? In oh, there's always fuck fuck games going. And nobody, everyone's like, we don't do that in basic. Please. Yeah. I walked in on so much of it. Like give it a rest. There was a handful of, we had a handful of women in basic training. One of the girls um, is still a very good friend of mine today. Sarah Pellegrin. Um, she was with me. She was a tiny little thing too. Then we had a, I think we had three other women. One went artillery. One of them's not in anymore. One went medic. Sarah went medic. Um, but we, we all kind of trained together. We don't really have any issues. If you were on a certain side of uh, Saint-Jean, you were in pods. So women would go in their individual pods. But if you were in the other section, so they're like blue and green, you would be like full room. So you just, you share, it's all the same. So it's not a big open bay like a, Sometimes it can be, yeah. it just depends. And then when you go to your regiment, yeah, it's big open. So like when we did any sort of training, I'm just in the same tent with all the guys. It's no yeah. different. And uh, for the boot camp experience, how mm -hmm. how big is the? Uh, and, and I guess what is the name of the group that you're with, and, and about how many uh, people are in it? It's a great question. I don't remember. I remember. <laughs> I remember what we were called because I remember we had to say Romeo zero one zero six Echo. That was our class. That yeah. was my group. Because um, there was, I think there was three classes going on at the time. So there was two English and then a French. So these were all French. So everyone that spoke French was like born and raised French, they were in that one and they okay. were with those people. And then yeah. we had the two other. And so we would kind of compete with, those were the graduating classes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, once you left there, was there like a, an AIT or kind of advanced training? Oh yeah. Training? So we did basic training and then, um, we did the trade specific training after that. So everyone did their basic, um, we had to go through uh, St. John, we had to do Farnham, which is like the week of bullshit. You know, you had to do all your, your ruck marches, your carries and all that to graduate. And then you got posted depending on your trade. So for me, because I was artillery, there was a couple options, but most of the time they sent you out to Gagetown, New Brunswick. So that's where I went to do my next level of training. So you do your SQ and your DP1. And your SQ is all of your weapons, your grenades, your C7, C6, C8s, all of that stuff. Um, so you guys call them like M16s and machine guns. I don't know what you guys call your machine guns. Um, but all of the basic stuff you're going to learn in that. So your Carl G's, you learn how to shoot all of those M72s. And then after those four weeks, once they beat the hell out of you there, sleep deprive you there, then you move on to your very much trade specific. And then we did another four weeks as an artillery. So we learned how to run the 105s, the mortars and all of that. And then on graduating class, I don't remember if we shot the triple sevens then. I want to say we might have shot the triple sevens then i'm we might have sorry i was just thinking about that um but we we did predominantly focus on the 105s um 
which were much easier to run, obviously much easier to learn the old school sites. You'll learn like the traditional artillery before you get on a triple seven where they've got the GPS computer and it's typing in, you know, yeah. it's a little, you get the old school way. So yeah. we did that. And, um, that was a little different. You just a ton of movements, you know, just drop the gun, load, do, 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 fire around, load back up and go. So we did a ton of that for those four weeks, but on graduating class, um, on parade, they had the RSM of the, Vacatia unit, which was the five Relk, so the five Royal Canadian Horse Artillery in English, and five of us were getting posted there. So they came over and were like, "You, you, and you're gonna like go there," and they're deploying in April. So there was five English people that got put over to the regiment. So we, I think we finished there. I think we got to regiment like around August, September of '08. So January to then, and we were lucky because as long as you don't miss a class, because sometimes you miss one and you have to sit on pat. I'm not sure what you guys call it, but it's basically they put you in a room and are like, wait till the next class starts. Yeah, like a holding unit or something. Yeah, yeah. so we did that, but I we banged it out. I like basic SQ DP1 regiment deployment. Yeah. So from the time from day one of boot camp until you were at your regiment kind of starting the actual job was about 10 months? Eight or nine. nine, or nine yeah, nine. yeah, we didn't get breaks in between. Okay. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, and, and throughout each phase of this, like what, what was the percentage breakdown of men to women uh, within those units? Did it vary or was it pretty consistent? It seemed fairly consistent for me and mine. Like I said, I think there was like five or six women total uh, for, for my group. And uh, then- uh, How many? Say again? How, how many people total? Like five or six women and how many men? <sighs> God, that's such a good question. There had to be, I would say probably, I'm rough estimate, 35 of us, 40, oh, okay. maybe. Yeah. It, it, that's what it felt like when you were at least if I'm if I'm thinking of pods and I'm counting the amount of pod rooms yeah. I, I would think that'd be about it did you find that um like from a women in the military standpoint I'm curious to get your take with that type of disparity men to women and and in those types of jobs what what your take on uh, women serving is having been a w woman who has served I'm pretty blunt about it and some women don't like it. And so fair warning. Um, I actually talked about I'm this. I'm not a woman. so you Okay. Well, Rebecca's in the room. I don't want to hurt her feelings. <laughs> um, actually, she's one that could handle it just fine. Um, I'm, I, I spoke about it pretty honestly with uh, Riley Compton on my show because she's a female infantry officer. And we talked about the double standard, the two standards that you, the United States have. I think it's absolute garbage and I think it's going to get someone killed. Um, I've always been the belief if you can do the job, you should do the job. If you can't, then you shouldn't. It's nothing to do with gender. It is completely and only to do with if somebody drops beside you and gets shot or blown up, how the fuck are you going to carry them out of that? Um, the reality is we can want inclusivity. We can want, you know, gender rights across the board. We're not built the same. Sorry, Mike, you and I, not the same human. Sorry. So, and I was waiting. That was the first one. Okay. That's one. All You're right. Sorry. I'm sorry. That's right. So yeah. for me, um, I was always of the mindset. If you can do the job, you deserve to do the job. Yeah. If you can do it consistently and well, then you deserve to do it. But then again, you're going to always get the person who, who says, well, I'm a female. 
I should be able to do it. Why can't I do it? The reality is if you can't do it, you can't do it. Go out and get better. Try again. Um, But when I got to my regimen and even in basic and SQ and DP one, there was no, there were, they didn't hold anything back. They, most of the time they were like, go for it. If you can do it, do it. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be lifting one, five, five rounds, which are just under a hundred to a hundred pounds at the time I weighed 103. So figure it out or fuck off. And that was that simple. And those guys had that mentality. Um, and they had every right to have that mentality. I wouldn't want to be on a gun with somebody where you're already going to be just enough people to run that thing and then have somebody that's going to be, what do you, we call them shit pumps. I don't know what you call them. Andy Stumpf thought that was <laughs> real interesting, but we call them shit pumps. If you're a shit yeah. pump, I don't want you on my, yeah. I don't want you on my gun line. And yeah. that's as simple as that. Did you find that there were like for you and any of the other uh, women that were in your groups or units that you were ever mm-hmm. with, uh, was there ever a, uh, an accommodation made or was it always, you got to be able to pull your weight and like even PT tests and qualifications and all that. There, it was oh all the no, shit. we don't, I know there is like women can, women, I think it was, I was never told this, but in basic training, I know there was two, there is two different for men and women. There is like women have to do X amount of push-ups and pull-ups and men have to do X amount. I'm going to be a dick right now. I hit the marks for both because I was an athlete before, not because I'm like, I'm this big fucking, I'm not Rebecca. I am, I am tiny, but I could, I could do it because I was an athlete and I was training my entire life. So it, it didn't seem that out of the ballpark to run X amount or to hit an X amount of pushups or sit-ups. It felt natural to me. I'm fully aware there's plenty of people in our graduating class that had to go to fat camp. Yeah. It's the 13th floor. It's where you go up, you get pulled out of your, out of your unit and you go up and you go work out every day until you can do it. Yeah. It's that simple. So, so there is a different standard for women. There's, it's not the same as the way you guys do it though. It's the, it's like if men have to do 15 pushups, women have to do like, 12 or 10. Yeah. It's, it, it's not like the, it, mm. it's not a huge difference. No, 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 no. Or like do the bent arm hang for 90 seconds instead of doing 12 pull-ups or whatever. Yeah. No, we don't do that stuff. Yeah. But when you get to your regiment, there's no, there was an expectation you hit the mark period. Yeah. So, I mean, that's encouraging to hear, um, you know, on your guys end, I, I think for sure in the American military, there's, there's a pretty big disparity that way. But I, I am curious from a, from having been, you know, overseas and, and in combat units where, um, you know, things are chaotic and you're, you know, maybe at a forward operating base for an extended period of time. Uh, were there ever any complications for you guys as they relate to just being different? Sexual sex? assault? Yeah. I mean, just, just <laughs> that, I mean, not even necessarily that, just the, the, the road bumps that sometimes exist with uh, mingling sexes in, in chaotic environments where there's double a personality guys around, uh, you know, in, in, you know, places out in the middle of fucking nowhere for extended periods of time. Okay. So for me, I didn't run into any of that. Um, I was really lucky. I had an officer, uh, Catherine Fontaine. She's same height as me. And she was a fucking machine. I had her, I had uh, Lieutenant Labonte. She was my basic training and my SQ and my DP one artillery officer. They, they would outruck, outrun a lot of the men without hands down, without even question. That's not even an exaggeration. So when we went out, when my gun troop went out to the FOB, we were at FOB Ramrod. So we were supporting an American unit out there. Um, it was her and I on the FOB. 
I believe there might have been, there were some American women, I don't know what their positions were because we kind of kept to our small corner where our guns were. Um, but for us, we didn't run into it. I mean, the Canadian military issue you these things called like the shiwi. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So it's like, you have to take all your kit off to pee. Yeah. You just, it's your, it's your issued penis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they <laughs> come in different pack. colors. Yeah. 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 It's a whole thing. Um, I never ran into that, yeah. but here's the thing. I think different personalities are going to get different things. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm really loud. No, I can't. I can't. Um, I'm not loud because of hearing, but I've just always been the person to assert myself. Yeah. And if there was any, my sergeant said it to me when I got to regiment in his very broken ass English, he was like, just watch, watch it. Not like, don't fuck around, but like, just watch it. And if any of these guys try to pull something, I want to know about it. No one tried because if you just approach it with the fuck off on your forehead, they don't even try. There's just no. And if you don't give them a reason to talk shit, if you don't, in terms of like, you can't load the round or are you, oh my God, I don't want to do the run today. Like if you just, just shut up and do your job, don't be that person. No, I, I agree. But there's some yeah. women that aren't that way, you know, then they're in the wrong jobs though, for that position. Yeah. If you don't have that personality, you need to really think about where you're putting yourself situational yeah. awareness. I agree. I think, uh, I guess I'm, I'm curious from more from a, like a powers that be Mm. or powers that be standpoint uh, as far as allowing it. Uh, I know from my experience, just at different uh, points in my career of, of seeing the problems that existed. And it was usually, it wasn't, um, I mean, there, there weren't any women in the SEAL teams period, but there were support personnel, yep. you know, so you'd have, you know, a platoon or two platoons or an entire fucking SEAL team out, you know, in the middle of the desert for months at a time, you know, that, they're out there isolated. They're just all dudes. It's nothing but fucking testosterone. Mm -hmm. And then like three months later, this little Intel chick walks in the room and is in a tent, you know, and it's just nothing but fucking problems. Uh, and, and so to me, like my, my position on it is that I, I don't, I, I'm not a big fan or I, I don't think that it makes sense to, to intermingle men and women in combat roles. Uh, I don't think that you should, not allow women to do it. I just think that, that the unit should be separated that way. Um, that, that's my take on it, but it, I understand why you'd say that. And I think part of me agrees with that. And then the other part of me goes, well, I've been in the fobs and don't get me wrong. There's the shit like that. I was lucky my fob because of who we had, we didn't have any, that being said, I know for a fact, and I won't name names. There was issues with my regiment at Canadian fobs, with Canadians, yeah. with dudes in those regiments. But then it got swept under the rug because they were the golden child of, you know, they're the next up and coming. So, you know, they didn't get, they didn't get themselves slapped for that. Yeah. I, I, to me, like just to avoid uh, all of that bullshit, just keep them separate. You know, Israel does a good job, I think, of, of even the on the special operations front of having all female special operations units. Because yeah. there's been, you know, a fair bit of debate here in the States over the last few years and there's been, you know, a couple of women that have gone through ranger school and made it. And, uh, and I've heard some horror stories about accommodations made for them. To, I to heard make the it same, through it, you know, but, but either way, like, I don't think it's a, a matter of, of, uh, you know, if they can or can't, uh, I think that there for sure are women that can, I just don't think it's a good idea. You know, to me, I, I think one of the unique things about, uh, the military generally speaking is that unlike a business, you can you can boil most decisions down to a simple question, which is, you know, does this make us a better warfighting unit? 
yes, then you do it. Uh, mm-hmm. No, then you don't do it. You know, right. and to me, I, I don't think juice being worth a squeeze, or if you want to look at it, say from like a cost benefit analysis on the on the business side, and that having women, even if they're augmenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a few uh, extra billet slots in special operations units. I, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze of of having them in there. Whereas if there was, you know, a, a stood up unit, you know, from scratch that's all women that that's still special operations. They have their own selection, their own cadre, their own curriculum. It's it's all doing the same shit, but it's just all women running it. I just think that that makes way more sense. Uh, and I also think that there's an element of especially in some of the Middle Eastern fronts, mm. there, there are, from a covert uh, and clandestine standpoint, there are uh, a number of, of operations and, and positions where women are far better suited than men because they can go mm. certain places and do certain things that men just can't uh, because there's such a, a gender distinction in the Middle East and, and in some other parts of the world that we operate. But uh, what do you think uh, of, of that versus uh, intermingling them? Well, I think there's, I would love to see something like that. It would give, it would give opportunity. And I think it would be really, I think it would be really useful. I think you would kind of get the best of the best that would come out for that. And it could, it could end up being incredibly successful. I did CST with the British and I was their female attache. And I don't know that a lot of them knew what to do with that. If I'm honest, Um, they handled, they handled it brilliantly. Most of them did handled it brilliantly. As soon as you shut it down, though, as soon as you shut the fuckery down, it, yeah. it took from the moment that I went with them getting dropped off at calf to where they were at t- to them going, this is your female. Yeah. And then to getting on the bus, that bus ride is where the fuckery would start. If you shut it down and you mouth back real quick, it yeah. is yeah. a respect. I, yeah, I don't doubt that. I think the, the problem I have with that is you're putting the onus on the individual to, mm-hmm. to shut that down. Whereas I think that should come from the top. Like just don't put them in positions where, where that's possible. They didn't you know? want me in that. My, my Sergeant didn't want me in that position. He fought tooth and nail for me to not go on that position. He yeah. said, I don't think she, number one, it wasn't trained for that, Yeah, which is fine, but he's, you know, this isn't a great idea, but that it was out of his hands. The thing with the all female units, I mean, there's the reason, there's a reason why the Israeli women are terrifying they're very good at their jobs and they're very effective. So I would love to see a version of that. I still think on some level because of the Middle East and because of the wars we're in or not the current proxy, but the one that we were in there for 20 years, I think that there was a lot of usefulness to having a female with a unit outside the wire, just because we have access to things or we can get into things. Sure. Cause I sure as hell know that there was plenty of times when we would go in and I would go take the women and kids into another room and the men would think, well, you hide everything with the women because they're not going to check them. They won't have, they don't ever have anybody yeah. to check them. That's when you start finding really sketchy things like yeah. radios and phones and device. Like that's when you start to find things cause they use them as, as great hiding things. So, yeah. um, I think there's still going to be a need. I don't know how to, fix that problem because I, I understand the being outside the wire, outside the wire, never turning off the fight or flight, the testosterone, that kick up. Like I, I get what you're talking about. Um, but I do think on some level you're, I don't know how you get around that unless you just blatantly never check women, never check children and you never put hands on them or 
all of a sudden the United States policy changes where they're like, we're going into these places and men are going to put hands on women. I just don't know how you get around it because either way, you're going to have women on the battlefield, whether it's civilian or military, whatever you're running into, you're going to have it. So I'm just not sure how other than putting in a full other operational unit and then running them through right behind you or attached with you, but they're complete separate. I'm not sure how you would do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, that that is how you do it. Um, you know, not, no system is going to be perfect. I just mm-hmm. think, you know, not even lesser of two evils, but just uh, best case scenario, I think, having having separate units that way is, is the way to do it. But With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, all right, so once you get to your unit and you... Um you kind of get settled in and what have you. What was the time frame from once you got there until you actually deployed and, and uh, went overseas? We were there August, September. I, th- I want to say it was August, September. I remember because I had my birthday there and they took me out to some weird techno Quebec <laughs> <laughs> situation. Um, it was awesome. But no, so we were there. We did uh, workup training at Fort. I want to say it's Fort Hood because you guys can shoot artillery at Fort Hood, right? It's not Fort Worth. You can shoot. It's Fort Hood. Okay, yeah, I can't remember, but we shot, uh, we came down and we did, I think a week or week and a half, we did work up down here with the triple sevens and then we got a big break and then we went to Wainwright, Alberta for a little while and we did uh, like an Operation uh, Maple Leaf where you have to wear all of the, the sensor systems and then they have an enemy come play you, um, play against you and um, they can shoot and kill you. And so we did that for a little bit in the winter in Alberta in minus 40 because it felt like the right decision. Um, So that was fun. And then we did Christmas break. We came back. We did um, some more training. And then we got a a decent break off. We deployed the end of April. The first two gun units went before us. So I think they were beginning of April. And then we rolled out the end of April. We were in country. Um, We went to the stopover point. And then uh, we were in country in Afghanistan pretty quick after. And then we were at CAF for three days to kind of get the lay of the land, the whole, you know, these are the new IEDs we're finding. This is what's going on in the country. Now go out to your FOB. Yeah. So it was really, really quick. Before you went there, um, what, what was your mentality and kind of the collective mentality of Canadian forces of, of going there and supporting that mission? Like, was, was there a a positive sense or was it more like the fuck are we doing here? This isn't our gig or what kind of, where was your mind at? I never heard a Canadian soldier ever say, why the fuck are we going to do this? I, I think we were in the mentality at that time. I mean, this was 2009 where we had just, we were all gung ho. Most of us had just finished training. We were all told like you're when you joined, you're going to deploy and it's going to be fairly quick and you're going to kill the enemy. And the enemy is, the Taliban and they beat women. They don't allow them to go to school. They blow kids up. They use them to hurt, you know, soldiers. Like we're going into fixed problems. We're in hearts and minds, you know, that kind of bullshit. And so for me at that time, I was, I was, let's, let's fucking go. We'd yeah. done the training. I was excited to go. And then when we found out that we were going out to an American fob and the other ones were going to Canadian ones, we were stoked. Cause we're like, they're going to fire a lot, which means we're just going to be hitting missions. We won't be bored. We got a point there where we were, once we did get there, 
never once in my mind did I go like, why the fuck are we here? I mean, now when I look back, I'm a very different, obviously perspective change, but um, I never once heard somebody like, why are we going to Afghanistan? Why would we going to fight this war? Like the, everyone was very, very much supportive in my units of it. Everyone wanted to go. Everyone was eager to go shoot. Everyone was eager to go help. There was no like, I don't feel like going to this. You'd say, uh, do you not feel that way now looking back on it? I have a hard time. Um, I think a lot of people, I don't know how, how do you feel about the Afghan pullout? Are you, uh, are you flipping the script on me? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, I mean the, the, I think the evacuation of Afghanistan was, uh, a a messy fucking abortion. Yeah. Um, and it was, I, I, I'm trying to think of, of a scenario with which it could have been done worse. And I can't think of one. No, cause it only could have uh, been better. I mean, in, unless it was just completely on fucking purpose. Uh, and even then I think it, it would be difficult to fuck it up worse than, than they did. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, in, in terms of the, the 20 years there, similarly, you know, initially a hundred percent, it was the right answer. Uh, and for the first probably few years, it, it was, where that line in the sand of, okay, we, we did what we came here to do and, and now it's time to, to bag ass. I don't know where that line is uh, right. for sure. It's not 2022 or 2021. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's years and years before that. Um, you know, I've lost a, a lot of really good friends and close teammates uh, in that country. And if I think about where that country is now versus where it was uh, on September 10th, 2001, um, not a single one of those guys' lives is worth any of it, you know? And, and yep. so it's, it's a difficult thing for me to, to try to wrap my mind around and, and reconcile that, uh, that we did the right thing. Having said that, I still think we should have gone in when, when we did and, and mm-hmm. how we did. I just, I just don't think we should have stayed there that long. Uh, Iraq, I have a completely different opinion. Um, I mean, I, I was there and I, I think it was pretty much all a fucking big mistake, but uh, but I also think it's, you know, like with most things, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's easy to sit here and say that now. Right. Um, you know, as the, the lead up happened, and granted, I was in my early 20s and I was a, a gung-ho, testosterone-filled frogman that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wanted to go to work wherever the fuck that was. And so, you know, my perception was admittedly um, a bit skewed going into there and that it was like, well, this is what I signed up to do. And, uh, you know, my country is deciding to use me here. And so that's the right thing to do. And I think for the individual themselves, that's really all you can think um, is that you're not there to be a policymaker or, uh, or for that matter, even really have an opinion on it. You know, you volunteer to serve your country in, in the best way you can, and, and you're trusting that your government uh, and your countrymen have elected a government that is going to use you in, in the way that they see best fit, uh, and you trust that that's in everybody's best interest. Right. Similarly, as a, you know, a guy in my mid forties now looking back on it, um, I I don't feel the same way about a lot of those things. Uh, and I, I don't trust our government, uh, the way that I did when I was, you know, 23 and, and flying into Baghdad. But, uh, at any rate, um, so once, uh, once you're there and, and you're at the FOB, can you say where, where in Afghanistan you were? Yeah, we were at the FOB Ramrod. So as far as I was told, it was roughly around 86 clicks northeast of the Maywan district in the Maywan district. Okay. Maywan district. I thought, yeah. So we, we went, we flew into CAF, which most people know where, where CAF is there in Kandahar. And it's, you know, the boardwalk where the Tim Hortons and all the, yeah. everyone stays. Um, we went there and then we went out on a, you know, out on our uh, Chinook and got dropped off out at 
fob ramrod. It was really small. It was a tiny fob. It was something that um, we were jazzed to do because we were ripping out another Canadian unit that were supporting them. They had it pretty set up for us there um, in our tents and all of that stuff. So it was it was a good spot. We didn't expect to, I mean, we had a T lab, we had some T labs there and we had some things like that. We didn't expect to ever really roll out. Those guns don't move. Like if you're moving an artillery gun quick, it's not good. You should never be pulling one of those you're, guns. If you're on the moving gr- it fast, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, if you're moving it fast, you're doing it wrong. And you know, with a, one of those things, like a barrel on those, like what a million bucks or something ridiculous. Yeah. So you're not moving those by ground. Yeah. Um, so we knew we were kind of settling in. At no point did I have an idea that I would be going outside the wire. Like, I mean, we were outside the water out of fog, but at no point did I think I was gonna be rolling out using black Cadillacs to be doing anything at my position. So um, it, was, it was a great fob. People were good there. Um, we didn't have too much fuckery. We had only one really weird incident where something kind of went sideways inside the fob and then well no we had another one actually but this one was totally just user error for for whatever reason sometimes the eod would bring in like small unexploded unexploded ordnance that they hadn't dealt with and they put them inside a sea can and whatever reason there was there was a woman who went in <laughs> yeah. with, um, and I that. guess she grabbed something and dropped. As far as I was told, she dropped a round of something and it went off and the whole container went off and it was super early in the morning and it was, we thought we were being overrun. We all woke oh. up to just rounds popping off inside the fob and things going crazy and exploding. And we went out, I have a picture of the shipping container. It is for what's left of the shipping container. But um, that was the only time that things really went besides one person coming in, Little Harry. Um, so I, I really thought it was gonna be a fairly uh, calm deployment. We shot, we did a lot of loom. We did do a good amount of fire missions, but they were few and far between. Um, we knew that the other fobs were firing a lot more than we were at the time. When you first got there, was there ever a, uh, like a sit down briefing of kind of the, the lay of the land in terms of um, this is why we're here, this is who we're going after, this is what we're doing? Or no goddamn clue. Nothing. Listen, the way, <laughs> what is that thing where it's like, uh, if the leaders don't talk, no one's going to follow. I mean, we, we got the most, I was like the lowest I could possibly be. Like I was a gunner. I was as low as it was going to get. And at no point did I need to know anything other than when you hear the fire mission, run to the guns or run to the mortars or go do your OP. So, um, we would go up on the tower. We each had to man our man that tower. So we ran that own tower and we would do the four hours. So everybody had a shift every day. Um, and what we saw outside there, we didn't, I didn't really know a whole lot about. I knew there was a compound ahead of me where there was a family and a, a girl that walked her cow, but that's the, for the most part, that was it. It was poorly planned. I've talked about this before and people call me out on, I'm like, fuck, fuck you. You have no idea. They're like, there's no way they would send you on an OP tower without MBGs. Yeah. Guess what they did the first night we just didn't have NVGs. It was pitch black. So, I mean, there was a, there was a disconnect, like, like plenty of things happen that people say, like, there's no way that could happen. It happens. It happens a lot. And so little things like that kind of work themselves out. And once we kind of got ourselves settled, you know, we kind of figured out the lay of uh, the land, but we didn't get told very much at all. And then we would have to give one of our, um, one of our gun members would have to go up and do GD duty with the Americans once like for a full week. And that was so that we could use their showers or use their, you know, washers or whatever. So that we would give, so we'd give one person up to go do that. And then we would go, whatever the Americans told us to do. Hey, I need you to watch the Afghan workers today. I need you to help pump water with them or just, you know, security, that kind of stuff. Um, But for the most part, it was just a consistent amount of our sergeant never let us fuck off. He would, we'd wake up in the morning and he would make work projects. We're moving gravel over here. 
We're doing this over here to keep us moving, keep us busy. Because if we weren't working, he knew it was going to spin people out. He deployed before he understood. Yeah. How, uh, how many of you were there there? Well, well, there's two guns. Um, I think there's about seven people to run a gun. And then you've got your, your, um, your sergeant. And then you've got your bombardier chef. So your master bombardier is two IC. And then you've got your comms tent and your officers in there. So I can't count. Like 30 people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a crazy amount of us. Um, cause two guns all together always. Um, yeah. and we didn't really, I don't say we didn't really associate with the other gun as much, but we liked our people. They did their thing. Our Sergeant was less mean and yeah. you know, shit like that. <laughs> He's but a polite Canadian. Yeah. He, he was after a while at first though, there for a little bit, I pissed him off a lot. Cause I, I just pushed back just push back a lot. And so he, at some points, and I still tell him this story and he's like, I, I remember this. Uh, he would rip me a new asshole in French and then have somebody stand beside him and then translate it into English. And they, they do a, a disservice by being polite about it or what? No, he would just, he would be like, <laughs> Sergeant would be like, that burns, fuck. And then yeah. this person would be like, fuck burns. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was hard to take him seriously at that yeah. point, but yeah. I, I take credit for speaking, uh, yeah. teaching him English. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. Um, so there's two, two guns. Were they the triple seven? Yeah. M triple sevens. How many American guns were at that same base? There wasn't, so it was it just, was just us. We were the support for the entire Americans. And, and what American units were there? Do you remember? Um, so as far as I am aware, because we, tr you know, how everyone trades patches and things like that. So they were the, the one, they had the one. So first armored division, yeah, maybe? Uh, no, they were infantry. Like, you know, the big red one. Okay. Those uh, guys. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious from like a, a big picture standpoint, and, and it sounds like they didn't even God, tell I you sound that. fucking incompetent right now. No, no. I just, uh, in, in thinking of like, again, the, the year that you were there, the time frame that you were there of being in a forward operating base with American military, and there's a Canadian our, uh, artillery unit that's supporting that. I'm just trying to think like what the fuck those guys were doing there. And, they were in and out every day. Like I know they were in and out. So a friend of mine, um, Chris Gould, he's, he's passed now, but he, he was there and they were going, they were in and out every single day. They'd be, they go out for a couple of days sometimes and come back. Um, and then we always still had people there, but they were, I don't know what they were doing as far as he would tell me, he would sit me down and like, tell me about like, Oh, we were just, um, we heard some guy was building IED. So we went and kicked in to see if he was there, you know, just stuff like that. Yeah. But we weren't, I wasn't told anything, even when I went out with the Brits. Yeah. So, I mean, in this case, then like they, they would use you as almost a, uh, kind of a close air support. Type yeah. Application. We were support fire for them. Yeah. And so like shit goes really wrong. And then you guys spin up and we, yeah, we get the call and yeah. uh, the phone would ring in the tent at night and Bomber de Chef will be show. He just retired. He is a huge dude. He's got to be at least 260. Big, big guy. But I have never seen a man move when that phone rang because yeah. he was in our 10 R2. I see he moved fast. He said, Messi, all set, fire mission, let's go. And everyone would run out. And um, it was it was comical to watch uh, grown men run out in their little tidy whities and yeah. start running the guns and things like that. But well, at least they weren't free balling. So, oh no, there were. Well, there were. All right. Listen, so there were situations. It yeah. depended how much we were needed, right? And we yeah. don't. We, pri we used to pride ourselves on an, our guns. Like we were fast. Our yeah. guys were fast. When we went to Texas, I have a eight minute long video of us competing to get rounds down range, just because we like to be fast. Yeah. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So from the time the phone rings until rounds are impacting a target, what what is that time frame? So it's very much dependent on if you get the call and you're waiting for comms, you're waiting for the coordinates, and then you kind of, you're in a holding pattern. So most of the time they'll give you the fire mission. You'll run out. Sergeant will be on comms kind of waiting for the officers to give us like the foods ahead of us to be getting us like we either need it right now. And if you're, and if it's like, we're moving, moving, it's, it's minutes. It's not long. Best case scenario. It's less than five minutes from. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, if, if you're within reach, cause those things go up to 40 kilometers accurately and the 45, yeah, pretty dicey. <laughs> we're pushing <laughs> the lines there. Right. Yeah. Um, so it was pretty quick though. But if you got out there and you're kind of, most of the time you're just kind of waiting, everyone's runs to their position and you're kind of waiting. Everyone knows what to do. So as soon as we kind of get the call and you can kind of hear it coming through, the guys are getting the rounds ready before he's even telling us, we're just kind of waiting for the permission to fire. Okay. Yeah. Uh, was there a, an average distance that you guys were, were firing or was it all not one that I would have been told? Yeah. I was load, like pull the lanyard, load the um, charge, just that kind of stuff. Yeah. I was very like blanket, basic bitch. Yeah. Um, and there, there were a number of fire missions. I know you said you did a lot of a loom, but yep. Um, on the fire mission stuff, was there any after action that you guys were made aware of, of, of making a difference in, in like, we would get told, uh, like, uh, mission successful That's target it. success. Like yeah. it wouldn't, wouldn't give you any more info than that. I asked once and they were like, you hit the target. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, somebody asked me one day recently, they said, what was that like being an artillery gunner? And I said, well, it's different because we know we're, we're not stupid. If we're shooting H E, if we know we're shooting frag rounds, if we know it's not loom, where are they going? Yeah. We're, there's gotta be, you know, you gotta be compartmentalized a bit, but you also gotta be, you know, realistic to understand if you're shooting rounds like that and you're firing 10 rounds, <laughs> you know, just pop, 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 yeah. they're going somewhere and they're going somewhere for a reason. They're going fast. And yeah. then I experienced that when I went with the Brits for the first time being underneath that. Yeah. And that is something I don't want to be on the other end again. Cause I also know some of the guys that are firing those rounds Yeah, and I know their intelligence levels. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, please don't drop this on me. Yeah, Please. What, uh, do you recall the, the largest number of, of high explosive or frag rounds, like combative rounds that you shot in one incursion? <sighs> had to be at least at one point there had to be at least or 10 or 15 at a point but after i get a, i'm gonna call my sergeant and ask because he'll remember it up yeah. ah burns yes i remember this one time uh, he'll hit me with it he'll be like so proud about it too yeah. but it was like um most of the time like yeah we if we were going for it we were going for it but then there'd be a large lag in between when we would fire like, like a few or like dozens oh no we would because if, if we're say if we're getting 10 round fire um, fire for action, they're getting it too, which means 20 rounds are coming down range. I gotcha. Yeah. So most of the time we're both firing at the same time yeah. or for, if something weird happens, if one gun's getting worked on or something, then we're going to take all the rounds down range on ourselves. So it was gotcha. very much independent on yeah. what they, what they wanted or what was going on with the guns at the time. When you guys are both firing, how far apart are the guns from each other? Oh, not far. Um, 
I mean, God, you're asking me questions. I'm trying well, to think. So that is distance the point of the wise, interview, right? Right. No, I'm trying to think distance <laughs> wise and give you like, because I can't give you your meters. You can give me in meters. I, I can do the math. I, I mean, I'm trying to think. Well, we were three tenths apart. Those green tents that had caught some, you know what I'm talking about? Those like, like GP meters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So probably like 30 feet, maybe. Yeah, yeah, we're not too meters. far apart. Yeah, we're rocking though. Yeah. Uh, and the rounds weigh about 100 pounds, right? Yeah. Um, do you know uh, what each of those rounds cost? I know it varies depending, but like, let's say the HE rounds, you know how much they are? I don't right? know what those are. I know what the, like the fancy one that we got taught all about that we weren't supposed to touch unless Ottawa said we could touch, which was the Excalibur round. Those are about that? a half a million bucks. What does that do? That's like a... It's like a almost, I want to say it's like a GPS guided. It's kind of like rocket propelled. It's VIP target only pinpoint accuracy. It comes in this special tube. If you crack that seal, it has to be used in an X amount of time. You got to hold. I remember uh, it was, uh, what was he? Uh, Bomba was it, was it? Um, Doval, really tall guy. You had to stand with like this uh, radio transmitter in the air so that it could lock on target. Like you would have to like set it up with a computer with that one. And it was a whole deal. You had to get a phone call from Ottawa. That one was used at a very specific time. I think Excalibur rounds have been used very rarely in Afghanistan. Did you ever use one? We didn't use one. I think one of our Canadian units uh, before us did actually use one, which would have been so fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. God, half a million a piece, huh? Well, if you think about that, the technology that's built into that round, I mean, there's a video showing of what the Excalibur round can do. And I remember when they showed it to us and it was like, here is a wall. Here is the target. Watch how accurate this is. And it comes around the wall and it like can pierce through an entire concrete building. Like, pop, 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 pop. Like it'll go right through. Yeah. Things oh, that's vicious. Awesome. That's badass. It was cool. Was there ever any feedback from the American units there uh, kind of, you know, through the, the scuttlebutt or whatever, um, mm -hmm. like of you guys did a fire support mission and they were out and about and it saved their ass. Like, did you ever get any feedback like that from them? Here's the thing. When we got to the FOB ramrod, there was a, a, there was a Canadian unit there, but they spoke English. And I know they were really close with all the Americans because when we got there, all the Americans started coming over and going inside of our food tent. And then like all of our staff were like, no no, we don't like this. Yeah. No, we don't like this at all. Cause a good amount of those people didn't speak English. Mm. And so there's, there's, there tended to be a bit of a separation that happened at that point when we got there with the Americans versus the way they were before some would come around, but at a certain point, the staff got really, were like, why are they over here? It's like, well, we're shooting our artillery for them. Yeah. You know, we're on the same fob. So it, it, I got, <laughs> I started to feel more comfortable um, after I came back from that operation with the Americans. I started to feel really secluded from the Canadians because at that point they put me on a lot of drugs and I was having a really hard time in general. And then the idea of trying to sit with guys who, I, I didn't speak fluent French. I was like a yes, no toaster, or I was like um, what I call Fringlish. So like three French words, five English words. And sometimes there was just not, there's, there's a massive disconnect there. I just felt like after, after I got hurt and after that, there was like this, like, well, fuck her. She got to go yeah. and now she gets to come back. And it just, it didn't, it didn't click well after that. Yeah. So I hung out with the Americans a lot more. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woohoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Ch -ch 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 
Chumba Casino has over 100 casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So in short, they, no. they didn't really give you a lot of feedback on. Yeah. No. Uh, so when you got hurt, uh, two things, I guess. How long was that deployment? How long, how long were you in that area? So I was on an operation for a solid one fucking week that went haywire. Okay. Can you um, walk us through that? Yeah. It, it's as much as I can give you, because I wasn't told, I, I sound like an idiot when I talk about it, because like, what were you going to do? I'm like, wasn't told. What were you, what was your job? Wasn't told. Whatever I was I, told to do. Yes. Did whatever I was told to do. So it came down that they needed um, some female CSTs to go with the British out into the Pandora district. And they were going can for- you say what CST means real quick for the- for uh, I, I just learned that it's Canadian. Uh, no, sorry. It's a, it's a female attache. What do you guys call it? It's- I have no idea. It's essentially one of your, um, it's like when you go and look after the women and children kind of oh, deal. They, yeah. I'm sure they have like some cultural, cultural, cultural does something. appropriation, something. Yeah, it's cultural, cultural something. sensitivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Technician. I know, I'm learning. I've learned that term from an American, actually. I was like, what are they called? They're like CSTs. I was like, yeah. oh, okay. Cultural something, something. So I, um, I was told I was being borrowed. I think that's what my sergeant called it because that was his translation. They're going to borrow you. So a couple of us went and it came through that I was going to go out with them. And at that point, like we had zeroed weapons when we, I don't even know if we zeroed when we got in country, but my sergeant was like, we got a zero. We need to go over to the range and at least get you sorted out. And he looked at like the basic C7 rifle we have. And he's like, this isn't going to fly. You're going into tighter spaces. You're going to need a better scope. You're going to need something. So he stripped his weapon, tacked mine out, and then just started handing me magazines and he's just like, take them. And I was like, I, we have enough. He's like, take fucking everyone I've got. I would rather you have more than not enough. You're going out by yourself. Because when I got to the Brits, they're like, they really were, she knows what she's doing. What they didn't know. I had no fucking clue what I was doing. <laughs> what I was told was they're going to call you up when they need you. And you're going to go into the room. We're going to put all of the women and children and anybody who sits there and says, there's no way there was 12 women and children in those rooms. Fuck off. There was because there was nobody else to deal with it. So anybody that wants to play that card, if you weren't in the room, shut your damn mouth because I'm over it. So we would get little tiny itty bitty babies in the room to even like the small boys up to a certain age, like the small little children. And so they would they would say, follow the bomb dog. When we got off the Chinook that night, they're like, follow the bomb dog, follow the black lab and the pitch black, follow that. So an American bomb dog? It was a British black lab. Oh, okay. Yeah. Benji. So you were with an all British unit at this point. Yeah. Okay. They were uh, a mix of the third Scott battalion, the black watch, the Minden platoon, two platoon. I'm learning all of this. I'm being corrected lately because I know I was going between three different groups to support them. Kind of, we need her here. So they would walk me over here. They need her here, go over here and kind of do that. So when some are like, she was never there. I was like, yeah, cause I was here doing this. So they would call for me. I would go up and sometimes I'd be with them when we just kick the door in and they would just kind of corral all the women and kids into one room. But the kicker was, is I was blonde. And so they said, don't be a target for us, hide your hair. So it, I just looked like a small little boy grabbing women. And that often ended up in a situation where like the father of the house would grab the back of me kind of thing. And there would have to be a whole conversation. I take my helmet off and, and then go into the room. So um, I was with him. What I would do is I would search the women and the kids and I would make sure there'd be nothing on them. I would go in and God, it was so gross. 
it's just so gross. Um, you go in, you just you know, duck position up against the wall and just start going through them. And a lot of times they were like, if you went to the real rural parts there, they were really stoned. Uh, what is that stuff they chew? Cop. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, you know, dancing in the room, grabbing at shit. It got real aggressive at some points. Um, woman came at me with like some, you know, those really long material scissors. Yeah, those are dicey. And it just depended. And I mean, listen, I understood after we had our first loss, why they'd be angry. Yeah, you're kicking someone's door in really early in the morning and you're like touching their kids. Like, yeah, I'd be fucking terrified now being a mom. At that point though, I had the no give a fuck attitude. If you're stopping me from doing your job, I'm gonna sit you down, I'm gonna zip tie you. I'm sorry if you're crying, get over yourself. And so it was a really different mindset. And so I would just go in, I would search them. And anytime I'd find anything, you just whip it out the room. Find a phone, whip it out find comms, whip it out, you know, whatever they need to see and start taking pictures of everything they had. Cause very often they would hide them in their hair, under their boobs, wherever they would tuck, they would tuck things, Mike. The prison wallet would, uh, I mean, was, was there a lot of that? Uh, like uh, percentage wise? And it I was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like they were hiding things that were even necessarily dangerous or sketchy. Like um, they were hiding large sums of money. Yeah. Um, phones. So like, and then we would check the phone and what's on the phone. Okay. Now we're seeing things that shouldn't be on this phone or just wads of cash. Why do you all the way out here have all of that? Yeah. You know, and then you'd hear the ICOM get real clear in the area. Okay. Well, you've got all this money. You've got a couple phones. ICOM's real clear. This is an area we need to look at. Yeah. Um, how big was the, uh, the, the British group that you were with at that time? Like the operational unit? It was over a hundred guys. And so there's a hundred guys and then how many females? There was me and one other, but I didn't ever see her. Oh, okay. We never overlapped ever. So, okay. And, um, and so at what point did, uh, did shit go sideways and you end the up second day? Them? Well, the first day we, we ran into firefights. We, all I was told is follow him and we were going to look for someone, whether or not that's fucking true. I have no goddamn clue. They just said, when we were at the fob before my sergeant brought me into the comms tent and he showed me a map. And he said, you're going to go here. I said, cool. And he was like, don't be excited. I'm like, I'm super excited. Cause at this point I'm like, I just want to go shoot some shit. Yeah. I'm bored. We're bored. All of us were bored. That's the reality. We were bored. We wanted to shoot. Um, you know, it gets monotonous when you're not firing artillery. So when I finally did go, I was ready to go. I th thought I was ready to go. Um, and so it was the first time we started, we actually started getting like rounds coming down range to us that I realized, I was not ready to go anywhere, <laughs> but I, I loved it. And I was, I wasn't like afraid of it. I, I wanted, I wanted more after that. I was excited. I was like, I want to go on the roof. I want to do it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go do some shit. They're like, we don't put, we don't put support on the roof. We don't do these types of things until they put me on the roof until they had no choice. And sometimes things just got a little hairy or we would hear some screaming up ahead of women and kids. And we had no choice, but to put me on the roof. We had no choice, but to put me in positions that I had no business being in, but that's just the reality of things adapt and move and, and support the people that you're there to support. As much as I was there to look after the women and children, when shit hit the fan, I had no issue moving forward. If anything, I wanted to, because the guys that I was with, the ones that I still communicate with to this day, the platoon sergeants that I'm in contact with, the, the radio guys, the artillery guys, the foos that were there. Um, I felt very quickly, very early on after being shot at with these people, you build a bond of something where you're, you know, the idea of 
any of one of you getting hurt, like would bother me. So when it finally did happen, um, and we did lose the first person, um, during that operation, it changed, everything changed. I became angry real, real quick. It was a light switch. I, I really do call it my light switch moment. Cause I remember it very clearly. Um, it was like, everything got real quiet afterwards and it just didn't turn back on. And I just became violently angry. What, uh, what happened? I, mean, I, I know the obvious, but I mean, do you yeah, I, I'll talk about it. Um, I won't say any names because they've asked me not to. Um, we were in a situation where we were, we were moving and we were waiting for some of the guys to go up ahead and clear the area. And uh, a couple guys went up ahead and it was real quiet. And it was one of those weird positions. So I'll, I'll kind of lay it out for you. So for, to the right-hand side of me was a compound. It was a two-story compound. There was a sniper on the roof there. Um, we had guys holding there. I believe Watson was either over in there. Or he was behind me. There was a road in the middle. On the left-hand side was another compound. We were at our backs up against it. Straight ahead of me, if you go straight down that road, it kind of went down and winded up. There was a wide open space on the right-hand side with like, uh, just, I don't even know what it was. It was just kind of greenery, wide open space field. And then there was like some tree lines kind of quite a ways away. And then compound here, 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 there was down in the ditch. Um, they look like those cannabis plants. They're really big and tall and really lush. So there was tons of coverage in there. So the road ran along them like this. And then at a certain point, another road kind of was up at the front here. And then right across from that was a, like a gray putt. So, you know, it's, they're like those mud huts with like rectangular holes kind of cut in them for aeration. And so he, they walked along that road and they went into that gray putt. And we were all kind of sitting there. Things were dead silent. I remember because there was two guys to the left of me. And I remember facing this way. And I was just sitting there and I was just looking around. And we were just kind of waiting for movement. And then the ground shook and you heard the boom and I whipped my head to the left and just saw, I'm not allowed to talk about that stuff. They get angry when I talk about it. So then we saw that and um, everything just stopped moving, just stopped moving. And it was like that thing from a movie where um, you get that like tunnel vision and everything gets like quiet. Like all you can hear now is like the icon radio screaming and them like, oh, well, like they fucking, they, you knew they hit something. And then you heard radio chatter. The Scottish guys are like real speak real, real fast. It's like, da, 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 da. And I didn't have comms. So I was just sitting there waiting and I'm looking around and, and then things just got hairy fucking fast. Like fucking fast. Cause you know, as much as anybody else does, if they hit one of you, it's they're watching from somewhere always. And that's not going to be the end of it. And then mortars start coming down and things like that. So then what happened was all I knew is we see one of the guys start running, like bleeding, running down this road. And then kind of everyone's like, we're moving, things are moving. And then other guys start running. And then the guys beside me are like, we're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to go. So then we jump down into that ditch. And that's what it was like that, that movie scene I'll never forget. Like you're running through those trees and you're in that, like, <sighs> like you just can't get, you just can't, you can't get there fast enough. Um, but what I wasn't ready for was I didn't know what I was going to run into. And we kind of got to that edge of that road and rounds are going down and, um, we just got the, okay, one, two, three, move at once. And we moved at once and we walked in and I said very clearly, where is he? Because my brain couldn't fucking compute what I'd seen. 
And then they're like, what's left is left is what's here. Let's gather and go. And um, so we did that and uh, grabbed the helmets that we could find, grabbed everything else we could find, bagged it up, machine gunner laid down fire. We got um, one of those green cots and a guy in front of me provided cover fire going backward, going back towards um, the compounds. There was another guy, so and then the other guy was carrying behind and then that was in front of me. And then I was right behind the guy carrying the back of the cot. And when we started running, I've never heard rounds. I've never heard them that I've never heard them with. I've never heard that. I've just never heard them that close. And I didn't wrap my brain around it. And then one of the guys tripped and then the cot kind of went down and it was fucking, here we go again. And then, um, at this point they had called for support to, for an angel flight is I think what you guys call them. Um, and so they got, one of the guys that survived, they got him onto the, uh, onto the flight and they put him, you know, where's so-and-so, where's so-and-so They're like, ah, he's fine, mate. Like he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's fine. And they cover him up and put him on the fucking flight and take him off. And while they're doing that, another, another, um, I don't know if it was a black Hawk or a Griffin or whatever people give me shit for it. Fuck off. So it, like come around and like, lay down fire kind of deal. And, and we come back and then we run into that compound on the right hand side and we just all sat there and then things kind of died down. It got real, real quiet. And I remember there was a group of guys sitting off to the right-hand side. They're in a big circle and they're all fucking smoking. And this is my first experience of a loss or body parts or people or fucking rounds that close to me. And um, I, didn't have my, I didn't put my gloves on um, when we were dealing with that. And so when I came back, um, uh, uh, Craig, uh, Hardy, he's a good friend of mine. He was the medic at the time. And, um, he came over and sat with me and I, I have an issue now where I, I still can't have skin on things or, or touch, uh, raw meat or anything like bare hands. Like it's something I just, I have a work. That's one of the things I haven't worked past. And I remember, cause it, it's something I, I I do now, like if I get really, really stressed, I'll start rubbing my hands like this. Cause I had, I had blood on them and I didn't, I didn't know how to like, um, I didn't know like what I was supposed to do and I didn't know how to get it off. And I didn't know what I, um, should do with that. So I just, I just kept rubbing them and doing this. And he came over and he was like, he'll be fine. You're all right. And he just puts a whole bunch of sanitizer in my hands and I just, okay, okay. But then I just like kept like, uh, obsessively kind of running. And I remember asking Watson for, uh, was it, I don't know if it was Watson or one of the other guys can I have a fag. And he's like, you're not smoking. You're not starting now. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> <It's fine." laughs> like, um, and, um, I, we just waited and I was like, what, what happens next? And they're like, we push on, just push on. I was like, okay, where? And they're like, we're going to walk right past it. We're going to, we're going to get up, we're going to move and we're going to walk down the same road we just came from. Um, and so we did and we got up and, um, I don't know how long it was from that point to when we were in the next firefight, but for whatever reason, it was, it was always happening. Like right when we were moving in between, like it was just, we were clearing spaces. We were just clearing houses, like just next one, boom, next one, boom. Okay. Take a break, take a break. Next one, boom, next one, boom. And sometimes there wasn't women and kids there, but I'm with them. I'm with them. So I'm, I'm do, we're doing all the same things. And then there was a situation, uh, 
I don't know if I, I don't even remember if it was that day or in the next day where I was with, um, the, the, the loss I was with Craig Buchanan and I was with, I believe Watson was there. Craig Hardy was there. Steve Noble was there. Um, and they were with me for all of that. And then when we, the time I was on the roof, Steve Noble, the platoon sergeant who would normally have never put me on in a position like that. We were, we were taking fire. Um, we all kind of ducked into this compound. We were taking fire and, um, I don't even know if he really even realized necessarily that he put me up there, but he was like, you, 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 and get on the roof kind of situation. So they, <laughs> cause I couldn't, I couldn't get on the roof on my own. They lifted me up onto the roof and, um, we just started putting rounds down range and they're, they, as far as I was told that they, they heard screaming up ahead and they had no, they didn't have enough people. So they're like, we just have to deal with it. So we jumped up on the roof and we're putting rounds on range and van, um, jumped down. And, and again, people are like, no, no sharpshooter would ever leave his rifle. Yeah. When he's getting rounds, he, he would, he's fine. He would. And he was lying down beside me. Um, and he, he was a sharpshooter. So it's a, a longer rifle, but it's the length of my body. So it perfectly kind of blocked my body and we're firing in this kind of direction. And from the left, you just hear pop, pop, pop. And like three rounds came and one smoked the buttstock of his rifle. Um, and so after all that kind of happened, we all got down. We're like, oh shit. Oh shit. And he pulls it up, he holds it up like this. I remember he had a cigarette hanging out his fucking mouth and he goes, all right. And so he, he pulls it out and uh, I have it tattooed on my hand, but I have a picture of it. I, I said, you're not going to give that to me, are you? And he goes, no fucking chance. And I was like, come on. So he said, you can take a picture of it. So I, I put it on my leg and I took a photo of it and I just got it. I got it tattooed onto my body. And, um, it was one of those moments I wanted to remember because I didn't ever think I was going to get to do anything cool in my life. I never thought I'd get to actually support, um, but after that week, we just kept just kept getting fucking everywhere we go. We were getting shot at. It just it was fucking uncomfortable. And the first time I experienced um, being under artillery was a wild one. We were with we were with a bunch of guys, and the only people I can from my recollection that I can remember off the top of my head for sure because I have a video with him in it is um, it uh, fucking what's his name bald guy you would know that. Um, <laughs> I'll remember it and I'll get it back to you. Um, but I have a, I have this video and I remember they're like, we're about to send rounds down range. Everyone just stay put. Cause that what had happened is we were advancing forward and there was this mud wall on the left-hand side of us. And there was a compound up front, but it was a pretty decent space, but there was this huge hole, which looked like an idea had kind of gone off. And so we had, we were walking through it and we were walking fine. And there was no, there was no, um, we weren't taking any fire. But once we got up to that point, we started taking rounds, but they were getting way, way too close. So they're like pushed back. And they're like, what, we're going to go individually. And so I remember he looked at me and he's like, I'm going to count to three and you're going to run. And I was like, okay. So I just remember running and I felt like a fucking gazelle. I ran over, <laughs> I jumped over that hole and I was like, there's no way I'm going to clear that. There's no way I'm going to clear that. I'm going to clip that and just eat shit. It was like the only time I was like, ah. it was one of those moments. And we got back into the ditch and like, we're going to hold for fire. And then they called, um, they, call, they called artillery for the tree line ahead of us. And I, I've never... I've never been more afraid of, of artillery in my life was until that, I heard a crack. Was that your guys that were? I, I don't know. I th I'm not sure because I didn't know who was in the Pandora district. Um, 
I thought it was, but it might not have. It could have been one of the Brits. But either way, I was I was not feeling that vibes of being under that shit. Like it was not something I wanted to deal with. But when you there's something super satisfying though when you call for fire, you know it's not going to take long, and you hear the the thunder crack through the sky, and then all of a sudden it's a boom, and it's just this like, oh okay, yeah. we hit target. Okay, it's good. Yeah, yeah. So it just it got. Um, it got a little messy and a little dicey. And um, I know that the other, some of the other guys were taking, um, taking a lot of rounds. I know that the other female had issues after as well. I know there was some stuff there. I, if I'm not mistaken, there was, uh, she, she was two or three people behind when they went into a compound and some ANA got hit. So it was, you know, it just wasn't a good all around operation. People were getting hit. There was a lot of, I used all my mags that Sarge gave me. So I'm like, I was, I was proud of that. I was pissed. I didn't get to throw a grenade. I just wanted the pin. Um, but I, uh, I was beyond proud of what I was able to do. Um, I did nothing important, but I felt like I supported them the way they deserve to be supported. And so I'm, I'm proud of the time I spent with them. But what I didn't realize was when that when we lost that individual uh, and the way we lost that individual and then being a, a part of that, I didn't, I didn't realize how f- fucked up it made me until we were back at calf and um, I got my ass chewed out because I didn't have any magazines and my hair, my braid was up too high. And I fucking ripped that warrant officer in half. Like I just, I, I cracked, like there was no, like, like fuck you. Like it just, it went off. And then um, we went to the ramp ceremony. Um, Cause there was a Canadian coming home at the same time. And I asked my Sergeant, can I, once we're done with ours, cause they, you know, the Canadians will go on their plane and then everyone will kind of be on the tarmac. And then um, I said, can I make sure, can I go stand? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. So I went and stood with those guys and, um, it really fucked me up. That fucked me up. I remember I buckled completely, um, completely. Like two ladies from the Canex that were working on calf came over and helped hold me up. Like I completely shattered. There was, I just remember like yelling things that I'm not allowed to talk about anymore. Um, just being like, you know, sandbags, it's fucking sandbag. It just, just, you know, when you just know what came back and what, what's left, what is, what isn't. Um, and I just became really angry and um, sad and numb. And I couldn't talk to anyone about it back in my unit because they weren't going to believe it. And I felt really alone. My sergeant understood. Uh, he didn't know. So they, I came back and they end up putting, um, I had to go because of what I was involved in. There's an after action report. People don't know that there is. So there is an after action report. Um, because anytime any human beings involved in a collection of a person or whatever, you would know this, you have to have, there's an after action report. You sit with the, M- I don't know if you guys do you ever sit with MPs. Do you ever have any of, it, it depends on what, uh, what happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have after actions after absolutely everything we do, but yeah, there's, we had to go, a couple of us had to go sit with the, the military police and write statements. Yeah. Um, 
so there's like a four page handwritten statement. I sat with a female uh, MP that she wrote out. I don't have a copy of, I'm highly, highly, highly regretting not getting a piece of that. Um, just cause a lot of people, uh, refute that I was there. Um, it, it exists. And I, and I like people from, uh, from your unit, I just one individual. Oh yeah. Um, and, uh, I remember writing it with her because she was handwriting it. So we had to be real slow, right? About the details, who was in front of you? How many guys were there? Where were you standing where it happened? Where were you when you were like, they, they fucking like, just like handwrite like real slow. So I just remember that having to go back and do that. And then afterwards, um, went to the doctor there and he was like, eh, this isn't, you're presenting with what we call acute PTSD at the time. So we're a little concerned. So they're going to give you some medication to help you sleep. Cause I started just pacing like out of control yeah. and just walking around the boardwalk and not sleeping at night. And just a lot of the Brits would pace with me. They would um, come hang out at the boardwalk. Uh, I, the dog handler uh, with Benji and um, a few other, other of the guys would come hang out and they would just hang out with me. And then, um, and then I would go back to the Canadian side and uh, just get fucking yelled at for, fuck off who knows and then um they put me on all the meds and then they sent me on my hlta which is like i don't know what you guys call it but it's where you go away on your break oh like uh r and r yeah they call it hlta so i went away for that which is a living nightmare that was the worst mistake they sent me right from that up just fuck off so i did that and came back and then it got so much worse you went back home for that? no i actually went to the dominican republic um i my i met my mom there hmm. um and so she got a, a real ugly, ugly taste right after everything happened. Um, real, real gross. And um, it was a very interesting three weeks. And then I came back to uh, Afghanistan and they sent me back out to the FOB. But what they didn't tell my superior officers was, was that I was on a significant amount of heavy duty narcotics. And so I came back and was dead silent. What did they have you on? I don't even know the names. There was a sleep one. There was an anxiety one. There's a depression one. There was one for daytime. There was a, I had a list. Like I, I think I have a picture of it. There's a, like there was a long length. And so my sergeant didn't know about it until one day when he came out and he, we did a fire mission at night. And he said, I need a couple people to stay awake where we have like timed loom we're going to shoot. And so I was like, okay, so we shot. And he says, I remember it very, he goes, I remember it very fucking clearly when I realized you weren't okay. It was when you were cleaning up after and we were cleaning up um, just the garbage from the, um, from the charge bags. And uh, he looked at me and goes, Burns, you all right? And I stood up and I just kind of went, oui, sergeant. Like just like real fucking, you could tell I was like looped on something because I'd taken the sleeping pill, right? So I was, you know what that's like when you're on a sleeping pill and you're up and you're. I've actually never taken a sleep. Well, fuck you, Mike. Okay, try. Yeah. Try and then try to function and tell me how it works I out. I will. I'll do that next time. Yeah, good. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't good. So then um, there was an incident where I was on top of the OP tower and the girl that I was used to seeing, instead of like the wave, I thought she had a gun. I rocked around like it, there. And then I knew something was wrong. And I pulled myself off the tower. I said, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Like, this is not good. Who, uh, who prescribed that shit to you? Uh, the calf doctor. That was there. That was in calf. Yeah. Whatever the hospital there. It seems odd that they wouldn't uh, like 
that they would do that and send you back or that they wouldn't let uh, let people know it's fucking strange but i, I want to take a few steps mm-hmm. back and, and first say i'm going to disagree with uh with your statement on you uh thinking that you didn't do anything important uh i, I think you know better than that but mm-hmm. uh I, I i am curious the that entire span of of when you were in the cst unit with the brits was seven days ten days how, how long not even that Four or five. Four or five days. Were you out that entire time? Yeah. So it wasn't coming back no. and forth? No. Um, and so there, there was one individual, a Brit, that was lost on, on that. Yeah. Uh, and then were there other uh, casualties sustained? Or I think there, if there were, they were with other guys that I wasn't with at the time. Yeah. Um, and was there, a, you guys got hit and you kind of fell back a little ways and then you, you pushed forward. Did mm-hmm. they... Was it like a close air support thing where they suppressed whatever was fucking with you guys and then you moved past it? Or? Yeah, when they came to pick up um, the individuals, they had uh, one that was picking up and another one that was doing air support, and they were just just unleashing hell from the door gunners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that four- or five-day period, do you, do you recall about how many, um, I don't know if you want to boil it down to individual operations or targets that were cleared or, or what have you, but... I can't count dozens, hundreds. I, I mean, for me, at least it had to be at least dozens. Cause I was getting moved so often. So I, we would do, we would clear like six or seven and then I would get a call. Okay. Well, she needs to be over here. So then I would go over there with them and then we would clear over here. And so I was just getting shifted constantly. So I was yeah. never with the same people. Um, I would go back to some of them Yeah. and depending on what they were doing in between, I had, I had no clue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, during that entire time, I mean, uh, periods of darkness, did you guys sleep? And take naps what yeah so uh i was never that's when i wasn't allowed on the roof um they would just tell me okay just sleep like you just sleep because we don't we can't use you at night just sleep um and then there was only one incident where so i would sleep i think i slept max like three or four hours at a time and then after that first night though after everything that happened i wasn't i wasn't sleeping well anyway yeah. um i would put myself in my like little uh, sleeping bag cover because I just brought the cover and I would I literally just put my whole body in it. I just would tighten it up from here and I would just curl into that and just stay like that. Yeah. Um, but we, I didn't, we, I didn't sleep much after that and they would do rotations with the guys. Um, but we had, we had one, um, one support flight come in with water and ammo um, and that time I went out with them to collect, kind of collect all of that. But other than that, at night, it was, it, nothing got too crazy or too weird or too dicey. It was, it, it was like right when the sun cracked up, that's when things would kind of go. And it went like that until sundown. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you guys have food with you? Yeah, we had MREs. Yeah. Did you eat much? I had the British ones. They were garbage. <laughs> they were so bad, man. Yeah. Um, all right. So once, once you come back from that, uh, well, actually one more question on the, uh, yep. some of the searches that you were doing, uh, did you find any like legitimately nefarious stuff or was it all like auxiliary stuff, uh, cell phones, money, whatever. Did you find any actual like bombs or weapons or anything like that? They found like, uh, they found bomb making equipment. They found tons of weapons. I mean, you, you personally, <laughs> me personally, the, no, I, um, a lot of phones they took stuff off of, mm. um, but I didn't get anything that was like, oh, that's concerning. Yeah. No, no, no. If anything, it was in like 
guys were finding things that were in the house. Like when I'd be in the room, they'd be searching the rest of the compound, but I'd be in this one. And I would search that particular room. So all the walls, checking all those parts, yeah. lifting up those things, cause the cutouts and stuff. Yeah. And most of the time, um, it was always in like the burkas, like in and around or under the grandmother, like just, yeah. just stuff they just shouldn't be having. Yeah. Yeah. Before Sarah discovered chumbacasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah Woo-hoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. <laughs> Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, all right. So you come back, um, you do your three weeks of uh, downtime that goes, sounds like uh, not horribly wrong, but pretty fucking horribly wrong. Not ideal. Um, yeah. And then you come back and realize that there's a problem. You pull yourself off the line. What, what happened at that point? At that point, um, I was telling uh, my one of my American buddies, which was Chris Gould, about this, and he like fair warned me before I went out. He's like, "Don't volunteer for anything. Don't fucking. Ch- I know what you're like. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Just be normal. Sit back. Shut your mouth." Which was the complete opposite of what I did. Which now I understand. Um, I, I talked to him about it, and he kind of like, "Yep, I've been there. Yep." Yep. Just kind of, you know, nodding along with me on that. Um, and then there was a point where, uh, my, my officer, he, he was saying something to me and I just, I popped, I cracked and I lost my shit. And, uh, they were like, yeah, she can't, we can't, this isn't working. Like, this is not good for her. This is dangerous now at this point. Um, and so they said, we're going to put you, we're going to send you back, but don't, here's was the key. Don't worry. You're going to come back. Don't take all your shit. Don't take all your shit, take the stuff you need. And then you'll be back at the fob. Nobody thought I wasn't coming back at, at any point. And then once they sent me back from the fob back to calf, that's when they started putting me into, um, to going to see the doctor regularly. And that's the time I sat down in front of my major and he took all of my medical chits and whipped him at me and said, fuck, this would have been easier if you died, less paperwork. Um, and he's a piece of shit. Um, and so at that point I was so numb and, just checked out. I didn't care about anything. So they're like, we're going to, um, we're going to put you in the QM. You're going to count pens. This is while you're still at the Ford operating. No, they bring me back to calf. They put me with a bunch of the people that are the Canadian um, unit that we have. And, um, it was, I was more of a nuisance than I was anything to them. So they just put me at the quartermasters and was like, count pens and sweep the floor. And this wasn't going well because now at this point I wasn't sleeping at night. I'd spend, I would spend my, all my nights hanging out with the British because they, I didn't have to talk. Those guys, they would stay up all night with me because they knew I'd be by myself and I didn't have to talk. I didn't have to say much. I didn't have to explain, explain why I was feeling the way I was feeling. I just could sit there and they would understand. And so they did. But then my Canadian warrant officer was getting fucking livid. You think this is a fucking vacation? Huh? You think that you can't, uh, you don't, you need to be working. You're at fucking war, Kelsey. Like all of this. I'm like, fuck you. Like, fuck you so hard. Fuck you so fucking hard. You have done nothing but hand out mail. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. That didn't go well. And then they said, you know, it's, 
it's clear like she's not, there's, there's not this, she needs to go back. She needs to go to the hospital. So they, they decided that I was going to go back early to Canada. Um, and so it went back to like, you're never going to the fob again. You're never going to see your unit again. You're not seeing the Brits again. You're taking all these meds and you're going to get on a plane. You're going to go back to Canada. And that's going to be the end of the conversation. How, how long were you in country at this point? I was there from April till September. We, I left like the last, I left the, the country, like the last couple weeks of August. So I got back in country, like right at the beginning of September, back into Canada. And how, how much longer did your unit stay there? They were only there like a few, maybe three weeks long. We were really close to the end of the deployment. And so I think my unit was doing like six month tours at that time. Um, and so they were going to be getting ripped out pretty quickly after. So I went from, from all of that, handing in everything and then getting on a plane. We went to the stopover point. Um, we stayed there for the day and then we got on the planes to go back to Canada and then we flew through um, Heathrow. We went from that location to Heathrow, to Toronto, to Quebec. And I got there at like 2 a.m. in the middle of the night and then just had to figure out how to get back to the barracks. But they were tearing the barracks apart. So I just called an old officer that was there and asked him if he would pick me up. And so he came and got me and we had coffee and we didn't say much. And then I went to the regiment and just sat there and waited for my RSM to just scream at me. So what, uh, what transpired like in the, in the weeks following getting back? Um, I got back, I got pulled into my RSM's office. I got handed an envelope that said, you're going to Ottawa. See you later. You're to report to the hospital. And so I packed up my shit and, uh, drove, drove home and, um, went to the, like drove home went out for one evening and realized that I couldn't be out, um, with a bunch of people <laughs> at all. And then, um, reported to the hospital and then they, they said, you know, you're going to start seeing somebody regularly. You're going to be on medication. Um, and we're going to go from there. And then, uh, I never heard from anybody for six months. So, I mean, were you housed there or where, uh, no, I had to f find somewhere to live. So you're still on active duty and they tell you to go to the hospital and then you're just like hanging out. Yeah. So you can go to the hospital. I didn't have to do inpatient. So, um, I would go to my appointment and, but I had to find somewhere to live. That seems crazy to me. Like they didn't, it's not a shock. This, this happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, militarily here in the, in the States, like I, I just, I don't think that would ever happen. Like at a minimum you would be, there would be barracks accompanying, you know, whether it's Walter Reed, or, I mean, fucking pick a place, pick a hospital. Mm -hmm. There would be some sort of, accommodations, even if you weren't, uh, you know, an inpatient where, you know, it would be, you know, here, here's your birthing area and, and here's your schedule. And, you know, there'd be some sort of rhyme or reason to it. Well, the reason I went back to Ottawa is because they send you back to wherever you enlist. So you can be close to your family. But my family was three hours from there. That's just where I enlisted from. So I, I knew a girl from before I joined the military and, um, she had an apartment. So I got a room with her and I stayed there, which was a bad idea. At one point I threatened to throw her off the balcony. Like it wasn't a good look. She was partying. I fucking hated people. I hated noise. I didn't like anything. I didn't know what was going on. Um, at some point that finally ended poorly. And I said, I need to, I need to get out of here. So I called the military and they had military housing. I didn't know. And they said, we can get you in one. So I got into one of those and then we went to get stuff from Walmart. And then I went after a family in a Walmart. Um, 
I completely blacked out. And this gentleman and his wife were standing there and his wife was like in a full burqa. And um, he was looking at me probably pretty normally, but in my eyes, it wasn't. And I was in just shorts and a t-shirt and I just started going after them and started screaming some horrific shit. My mom removed me from that pretty damn quickly, but it's not like a proud moment in my life. So, so militarily, like, did you, were you on orders to, to be there or like, I was just told, yeah, I was on orders to go to the hospital and be with the doctors. And that was it. Nobody from, so I never heard, uh, up until this last year after I did a, one of a couple bigger shows, um, my sergeant reached out to me and he goes, I had no idea where the fuck you were. They didn't tell us where they took you. That's crazy. They didn't tell us where you went. When we got back to regiment, nobody, you were just gone, hmm. fucking gone. So no one called. Um, I, I didn't call. No one called. We didn't communicate. I, I was just gone. So I didn't hear from my regiment. I didn't hear from anyone else. Um, I talked to some of the Brits. They were still all, most of them were all in country. So, um, working. So no, I just, uh, I just, I did nothing. Um, until someone called one day, a caseworker called and said, all right, well, it's time. We're going to try to get you back to work. Um, we're going to put you out of range and um, we're going to start, we're going to try like two half days a week and we're going to try to get you retrained and get you comfortable again. And at this point I'd been doing treatment with a the doctor there. It was going, okay. It was kind of hitting a wall. There was just more meds added. It, it, so I just started fucking off. I just went like, literally was like, somebody was like, you want to go somewhere? I'm like, yep, meet you there. Like I would just like gone. Like I would never normally have ever done anything like that if I was in my right mind, but no one called. Nobody told me what I should be doing. They gave me all these drugs. You think I'm just going to sit there? I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do things. I got to go. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't sit still. I couldn't, I couldn't just be in this box. I needed, I needed to stop feeling or hearing my thoughts. So I, I would just go do anything to feel anything, spend money to feel anything, do anything to feel anything. So how, how long from the time you got back and checked into that hospital until they said, Hey, we're going to try a couple days at the range a week. It was the beginning of 10, close to six months. Um, and they're like, well, we were going to put you with an artillery regiment. Um, but we decided we're going to put you with the range and we're going to see how it goes. So I went out to the range and I would do two half days a week. Um, I would do Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings and we would clear the ranges. We would, you know, be in the talk for when they called to go hot. Um, but I was at Connaught. So it's one of the largest uh, Commonwealth ranges. They do competition, the JTF two work out of there, the RCMP work out of there. It was a civilian range as well. They also had a protected bird sanctuary and wildlife. So we had, um, like hover, like we had those hover boats. We had some cool shit going on in there, but basically what all I did every day was get in a truck, go in the woods, look around the woods, patrol the area, make sure people weren't fishing there, let people go hot, clear the range. It's just, it, it wasn't a good look, man. <laughs> and how long did you do that for? Uh, I did that until I found out I was going to be released. Um, so probably the rest of that year, um, I would do that. And in between that, um, I got back into motocross and, um, I decided I was going to race again. And I started, I started racing again locally. And then I went and did the women's nationals, um, and kind of went across the country with that, with my dad. And, um, so while you're still on active duty. Yeah. I fucked off, man. <laughs> like from an accountability standpoint, it's, it's hard for me to fathom like how woefully 
uh, irresponsible it is on, on their part. Do you like, want to know how irresponsible it is? Uh, please tell me. Tuesday mornings, right? Go to work. Work out. Then I would work. Then I would go home and I would do whatever. Wednesday didn't work. A doctor's appointments on like Wednesday. Thursday morning, I would do it. Well, my now husband, who was the guy I was dating at the time, lived in British Columbia. I'd be done work on a Thursday. I'd hop on a plane from Ontario, go all the way out to British Columbia, and I'd come back Monday night. Wow. That is one thing I will say, like in the U.S. military, I can't imagine that something like that ever happening. Like they're, they're just, they just too, didn't know. too micromanaging. Yeah, they didn't know. I was doing it all the time. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, yeah, I'm not proud of it. But again and again, if you're not going <laughs> to tell me where to be, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to figure out my life because you're not helping with it. Yeah, no doubt. I, I mean, I don't blame you if they don't oh, have no, anything it's... to do. But um, if, so you're, you're going to these appointments every yeah. Wednesday. At and, least every Wednesday. If not, there was multiples a week. And, and so over a period of time, they determined that they're going to medically separate you from. Yeah, they after just doing um, like EMDR and doing all these meds, they tried hypnosis. They tried talk therapy, you know, physical fitness, all of those types of things. Pretty much everything they had to throw at it at the time in 2009, 2010. It's not what we have now in like 2022, where we understand things a little differently and different therapies and all of this. Um so yeah, they, uh, they decided, they, they actually came to me and they said, look, uh, I went to a meeting and they said, at this point I was irritated because all of my unit got their medal. Like in Canada, we don't, you guys have so many medals for so many things. We got one, like this was gonna be, I want my medal. I want this medal. I don't want, it's not to, it's not for pride. I just want to know I want it because I earned it. I fucking want it. And for whatever reason, we couldn't get it from the regiment. It just, I didn't get it for another, uh, and I didn't get my medal till closer to 2011 when I got released. Um, so we finally got it. They sent it from the regiment and um, they gave it to me and they said, listen, you're not, we don't think this is going to work. We don't think it's going to, you're going to get much better enough to go back into the position that you had in the military. So we've opted, we're going to medically release you. It's going to be three B medical release, honorable discharge retirement. Um, and then it's med release due to PTSD. Uh, I remember that meeting very well because I started screaming at the top of my lungs. I was so fucking angry because I really did have the mindset that this was my career. Um, it was fucked up at the time, but I was of the mindset that like, as soon as we came back from that operation and we were in CAF, I wanted to go back out with the Brits. Desperately. It's all I wanted. I wanted nothing else. I wanted to go with them. I wanted to go with them and you couldn't convince me otherwise. Um, so when they said you're done and you're cut, it's over, it, it, it crippled me. And then on top of it for them to be like, and there's a good chance you probably won't work well in the civilian world again. So I was 19 on deployment, 18 when I joined, 21 when I released. And they're like, your life's over. So figure the fuck out. Um, and then they try to do this, which is really great. Well, they'll put the paper in front of you and go, here's the thing. You got to do all this paperwork, all this medical, all of this, and then you'll get benefits, da, 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 da. Or if you really don't want to deal with it, you can sign right here, right now. And I almost fucking signed that paper and I am so glad, oh, I'm so glad I didn't, or I'd have no benefits, I'd have nothing. I wouldn't have gotten any support or any help. But the fact that they offer that to you when you're at your weakest, most vulnerable moments, really disgusting in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. It's fucked up. Yeah. Uh, so where did you go from there and, and what, uh, what was going through your mind after the being pissed off kind of subsided? It never subsided. Yeah. <laughs> it, it took a long time for that to subside. Um, what had happened was, uh, right before I deployed, I had, uh, I was told the story. I was sleeping with, uh, my husband's teammate 
and um you've never told the story no oh, i've told it it's told. was told at the wedding um so that my that's husband a was a, that's a hell of a toast oh it sure is um my husband was a professional supercross racer and he was racing at the montreal supercross and that's where i met him um when i was there to see someone else and we became friends and we stayed friends throughout the deployment when i got home i um i came back like i said i fucked off and i went to the montreal supercross again and met up with him and we decided that we were going to start dating, but he lived on the other side of Canada. So once we found out I was going to get the medical release, he said, just move out here. Um, so that I got medically released on May 23rd. I was on a plane on May 24th out to British Columbia. And then I, I was in British Columbia since, and I never went back. At that point, I got um, paperwork and orders to go see the operational stress injury clinic out there. Um, and then I was handed off to two amazing doctors, Dr. Mark Esqueda and Dr. Uh, Donald Greg, Greg Passy, who's uh, retired as well. He served in Bosnia and Rwanda. He's an old school, old man who will, you know, kick in the teeth when you need it and correct your shit. But he's constantly learning and evolving and working on mental health and in a real way, in a functional way that actually can get people up and moving again. And so I got kind of sent to him and um, moved out there. And then my husband's family and him went through, I put him through it. I put him through it real, real bad. So, um, we lived with them for a while before we decided to move out on our own and they got a taste of what real angry, uh, gross PTSD can look like, sound like, walk like, and talk like. And, um, they took it on the chin because we end up flying out to Europe on the 26th <laughs> on a family vacation all across Europe. Um, which was, uh, which was good until we went to countries that had anybody who looked like they were in the country I was just in. And then there were some situations and, and they handled Walmart again. It was a whole lot of Walmart again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, shockingly, they took it incredibly well, even though I said some horrific, horrific things. Did you get into any like legitimate legal trouble in any of those countries? I got really, I, I had people that were standing right here to be like, okay, let's get a movie out of this situation, put you over here. Yeah. yeah so I was, I was fortunate enough. Um, but then I, I've been out there and then in, um, I was on all these meds and things weren't getting better. Things were getting worse. I would take these pills and then think I would go to sleep, but then I would be up arguing with him all night and have and he'd be like, do you remember anything you said to me? Like no fucking clue. And so we realized this was becoming a detriment and it was no longer actually helping. Did you remember anything he said to you? No. So you had a free pass. Then. Yeah. Yeah. He won. He won that one. Um, but I was a heinous individual to be around. I was a horrible, dark, hateful, 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 hateful person. Very hateful. Like I couldn't feel shit. Nothing made me happy. Nothing made me sad. I just hated those people that killed the, my friends, those people that shot at me and I never got payback and I was in that mindset. And then um, for whatever reason, he decided he, he wanted to marry that and we wanted to have a child and we knew these meds weren't this good. They told me, it's not, you can't have kids with this. So my doctor suggested that we start looking at alternative things like cannabis. And so we started to implement cannabis into my life and slowly started to shift the meds off and increase the cannabis. And then we were able to have, uh, we end up losing our first and we had our second a year later. And um, after that, that's when, you know, I was knee deep in treatment and um, weekly and working on it and doing the best I can, but it was still again, kind of plateauing. 
Um, and rape, sorry, right before we had our son, um, he suggested art therapy. And that's when we, I started building things on the kitchen table. And that was when I started to realize that I didn't feel suicidal every day. Um, or I brushed my teeth that day. Or I got out of bed that day. Um, and so he said, you know, why don't you, why don't you keep going on this? So the art therapy was working. Um, and then I, my husband was like, why don't you call some friends and see if you can get old casings from them or something like that. So I'd call a bunch of the guys I served with or whatever. And they would send me these boxes of like spent casings. And I would just start fucking around on the kitchen table, um, with a drill, a pipe cutter and a hammer and just start making things. And it's, it started to work for me. And I thought it was really silly, but it worked. And then my husband, you know, coming from an entrepreneur background and his dad were like, this is cool. You kind of have something here. Like, cause people, friends would buy them or whatever. And I'd always wanted to help again, but I, there was no way for me to help again. I didn't think I could ever do anything that would help the community or help anyone in it or myself, let alone every day was just a battle to get out of bed. So I fucking wanted to help, but how can you help when you can't help yourself? Um, and so I started building this stuff and, um, it ended up spinning off into a company. And so that's kind of what I do now, but the art therapy is what led me out of, really led me out of my shit um, on top of the consistent therapy, the the physical fitness, the medication, and then slowly transitioning into more of a plant-based medication. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to Golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo taking release. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to Golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's G-O-L-O.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery, and I saw the Golo commercial, and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who have found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at Golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. What, uh... What the when was the shift where um, I, I guess going from all the traditional medications to cannabis and and were there other things? At first, it was just cannabis. Yeah, and like just straight like smoking weed, or was there yeah. more to it than that? Yeah, no, it was um, using oil, using a high dose of CBD because physically I I had some major injuries. Um, so Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. High dose of CBD. And then it went to THC at, at night because I was really uncomfortable with it. I didn't want to use it because 
there's, um, um, you know, I didn't want to get into the fact that like I had to talk to my in-laws about it because I knew they might be touchy about it. And I knew my parents would be touchy about it because I was, you know, fucking devil's lettuce. Like, you don't, <laughs> you don't, <laughs> you don't smoke that. You know, you never yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, so then I knew because I started using cannabis, I wanted to be vocal about it. So I got an opportunity to go to this event called Women's Grow and um, promote cannabis before it was kind of legal in Canada and why people should be using it instead of medications, especially with pregnancy. And so I knew at that point there was going to be something that came out. I did, a, I don't know if it was a podcast or something. I needed to talk to them about it. So I remember very quietly being like, hi guys. So I got to have this conversation with you about it. And they were, they were good about it. They, they asked a lot of questions. They wanted to know why I thought that was a better alternative or why, why that over and wanted to make sure it wasn't going to turn me onto harder drugs because they're of the generation of like, yeah. it's the gateway. And so I wanted to be respectful. So then at that point, um, when cannabis came in, that's when the shift started to happen because I got pulled out of this fog of the grogginess in the morning or the, the, um, the drug hangovers. And then that repetitive, just hitting those constantly. So once I started doing that with cannabis, that's when we started to see the shift. And then when art therapy came into it, it was like, click, click. Okay. We got like another part of it. And then I just already had a super supportive husband, like super supportive. He understood the bad days. He understood the good days. He understood the days where I couldn't get myself out of bed. Um, he, there was no like, Oh, fucking fix it. Be better. Be stronger. It was like, all right, cool. Got you. Did you brush your teeth today? Like maybe not. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So I, I, I tried really hard. Um, I was really good at putting a good face on. Yeah. I'm fine. Uh, you're still doing it. Yeah, yeah, I know. What, uh, how long did it take from the time you started uh, uh, experimenting with CBD and THC yep. uh, fr from like the, the time that you started that until you got rid of all of the all prescription meds? bullshit? Oh, uh, so I, I was first put on meds in 2009 and I was on those until uh, the first time I did ayahuasca, which was not last year, year before, year before I'm looking at my husband. That's Rebecca. I think year before. So I did ayahuasca, not last year, the year before. So it's been almost two years, I think, or yeah, two years since I did ayahuasca. Has it been that long already? Oh my God. Um, I had to be off of all of them because uh, the thing is with Aya and, and with any other psychedelic, being on an SSRI or serotonin reuptake syndrome is an issue, right? So being on a drug um, that is an antidepressant can be a big issue. So I knew at that point I had one drug I was on still. I was on Zoloft 150 mils a day, which is a, a decent dose. And I had been on that now for a decade and it really was my leveler. And I remember calling Dr. Passy after getting the opportunity to go and do ayahuasca. I remember calling him. I said, listen, old man, I'm going to get off of it. I know we had talked about it and he goes, well, we don't like to do it certain, t certain seasons of the year. We don't like to hit that right for depression reasons. And I said, cool, that's fantastic for you. I'm going in three weeks. I'm getting off of this now. And he goes, well, uh, uh, it's not a safe way to do it. And he was right. It's definitely not, I wouldn't advise it. I wouldn't recommend it. It is not healthy to do it that way. But in my mind, the next step in my healing was that goal. So I was going to do whatever it took to get to that goal. And so you just quit cold turkey. Uh, tapered within a two week span, pretty, yeah. pretty heavily off. And so, I mean, I'm assuming, is that similar to withdrawals from other stuff? Or? Oh, fuck. 
especially after being on that for a decade, my God, it was some of the worst head rushes. It felt like we'd be sitting like this, but it felt like my head was going from like the bottom of my feet and just whipping back and forth. Like I had never felt something so odd. You'd sit there and you're just wobbly and out of control. And it, and then the depression and anxiety just punched me right in the face. And there was irritability like I'd never seen. Um, so everyone was just like, it's okay. We just got to get her. We just got to get her to that point. We'll put up with it. We just got to get her to that point. We'll put up with it. And then we'll deal with it afterwards. And that's exactly what they did. And they took it on the chin um, because it was for a reason. And then I went away and did um, ayahuasca. And that's when things really did that kind of like click, 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 click. Okay. We're working with something here. Now we've got a path forward here that can really make a significant difference. But up to that point, because of the brand and what I was trying to do with Brass and Unity in 2015, we incorporated in 2016, I had a distraction and a purpose again. So as much as everything else was bad and I was on these meds, I had a focal point. How do I help? How do I help? How do I help? And I would push myself towards that constantly. And I would just drive myself into that, into that business. Um, and into learning how to be a parent, you know, yeah. not long after. Yeah. Um, from the time that you tapered off of Zoloft and did the ayahuasca therapy since then have you had to go back or or whatever you want to call it chosen to go back to any type of uh, traditional prescription medication or have you been off it completely? I've been completely off of all prescription medication since have you done any of the uh, ayahuasca or uh, any of the psychedelics I guess since, since that oh that yeah part? yeah that's something you, you do. I fuck with them hard now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I fuck with them hard now. I got no issue uh, saying that. What, what does that entail? Um, so for me, what I realized is, so I was given the opportunity to go do ayahuasca only because of one person. I, and I always like to acknowledge it because I started my podcast, um, the Brass and Unity podcast, uh, just under two years. Yeah, I guess so. it would have been ayahuasca would have been just under two years ago then. So not quite two years. And I had an individual I wanted to have on the show. So I reached out to them. My husband was like, Hey, why don't you reach out to combat flip-flops for a sponsorship, bullets, shoes, bullet bracelets, you know? Uh-huh. So I did. And, um, Griff answered right away and was like, yeah, we go to better together, like peanut butter jelly. Let's give it a go. And then I was like, Hey, so like, you're a ranger and you're cool. You want to come on the show? <laughs> and so he was like, yeah, sure. So he came on the show. We had the conversation. It went really well. And then he kind of leaned in and looked in the camera and he was like, hey, you doing okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm like solid. And then he's like, like, like he gets real awkward too. And he'll like lean in like, how you doing? <laughs> and I just, I, I, I fuck, I buckled, man. I'm not doing okay. Things are getting worse. I can't get a handle on this. And then I was, was like, he was nice enough to do this on camera for you. No, this was, it was on camera, but it was not recording I anymore. You. I wish it was. Cause now yeah. when I look back at it, I'm like, oh yeah. man, that would have been bad. Um, and he goes, listen, like, um, I went through this, a lot of the same things and I found, uh, this charity called heroic hearts project. Um, it's run by Jess. Um, yeah, it's run by Jesse Gould, which always freaks me out because of Chris. Now, when I hear that last name, yeah. um, it feels like he's like, uh, like flicking me from wherever he is being like, ha, ha, remember me. Um, and he said, listen, there's opportunities to do this thing called ayahuasca. I don't know if you've ever heard of it at that point. I had known of it, like of this crazy, like yeah. jungle medicine people throw up and um he says you know there's an opportunity there's one coming up in about like 30 days um I, I can make the call for you and see if we could get you in and I said I just remember going yep yes 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 didn't talk to him and normally I'm like hey so what do you think of this like we have those conversations about things and um 
uh, next thing you know, I was, I was down there and I was in a, in a room with, uh, a group of individuals. I still have a hard time believing I get to associate as friends with and some as family now. But when I walked into that room, um, with the men of that caliber and like people that have done some things like it's like sitting with some of the most badass warriors that have ever walked our planet. And I'm grateful because it was the first time since being with the British that I felt um, welcomed mm. and like I wasn't a burden or a liability. That's awesome. Yeah. And then we started puking <laughs> a lot together over a three day span and crying and sharing and supporting and no judgment. And I had at that point felt like I didn't have a community anymore. So as much as it was, you know, mama Aya and the shaman and the people, it became about the people. It became about feeling like I was worthy of being around these guys again. I was worthy of who I was. I was worthy of the word I had. I um, I was proud to be who I was again. I was proud to be that person again. And um, a lot of those people, and you know, my husband had tried for a decade, but a lot of those people had made me realize that it was, I was exactly who I said I was, I was exactly who I um, tried to be. And that was this person who just went through something like anybody else who just tried to do something positive with it. And um, with the help of them and my husband and my family, I, I was able to kind of come out of that. And so I did Aya then. And really Aya is, when you do it, it is really just the start point. The work begins after. All of the work comes after that. It is not like this magic pill or thing you do and it's like, everything's fine. Like it doesn't work that way. You have the work begins after and the integration and the conversation and making sure that you're integrating properly because you can go right out to lunch with that if you're not careful. And um, having a support system to understand that transition and what that looks like and having people to call when things got difficult. So I did that. And then I started uh, using psilocybin and microdosing psilocybin after that. And that's become a daily part. And so what I've kind of realized now, um, because I sat with Aya again after that um, as well, was Aya for me, because when I was younger, I was Catholic. Um, I'm what I call recovering Catholic now. And it's where I believe not in the, I don't believe in God. I believe in, there's something so much bigger than ourselves and I am not, how dare I even try to call it something? <laughs> like who am I to call it something? I, I just know there is, I know there, I feel it. I know there's something, um, but I found my faith again in the universe, in the world um, through ayahuasca. And I owe, I owe that community to ayahuasca. So it really brought myself a sense of peace in a way. And it helped me wrap around my head around what was going on in the world. It helped me see things differently, helped me feel things differently. It helped me understand energy differently. And then what I did realize though recently was like, this has to be for me personally. And this doesn't go, some people do I once and they're like, I'm good. I've seen that I am, we're good. We're solid. And they've worked through it. Me, this will be a once every six months situation and then a heavy, heavy duty dose of psilocybin in between every three months and then micro dosing throughout that. 
So you microdose psilocybin every yeah. every day? Or? Uh, so I use the it's uh, the stacking method. So I do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Sunday off. Off, yeah. 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 So if you didn't do it for say a week, what it, would happen? Nothing. Listen, psilocybin for me is really more of a depression management. Um, mm -hmm. It really does. The days I have it, it just makes things a little lighter, a little easier to cope with. Um, I want to say colors are a little brighter because you don't really feel it. If you're, if you're microdosing, you shouldn't really be getting a huge, like, oh, I can't, what is my hands? Like you shouldn't be getting that. Um, there's definitely days where sometimes you're like, hmm, that was a bit much. <laughs> But those are the days you just you just hang out and podcast. Um, so it you know it really depended. Uh, but for me, it it really is a depression management um, in a big way. And then when you do heavier doses, it's introspective. And why are you so difficult? Or how do we fix that? Or how do you be less mean? Or what is it about you that's making you project that outwards? And using it as a tool and not abusing it. I don't party with it. I don't. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. I'm not a heavy drinker. I'm not, if, if, if anybody you were to ask, I'm definitely a pothead. I'm a cannabis user. Um, I'm very good about the way I use it. I don't get blitzed out of my tree, but it, it allows me to be a better version of myself. And I've definitely tapered off of it since uh, my TBI treatment. Um, but that's something I didn't know I had until a couple months ago. Yeah. So you know, we often now know that PTS and TBI symptoms show very similar. So I'd been treating one thing for a decade going, why the fuck isn't I, I'm getting to a point, but it's always never, it's never really getting past a certain point with me. Um, I was getting more hard days, mommy crying on mommy's having a hard day today than I should be having. Um, and that's when I, you know, the TBI stuff kind of came in and we started looking at that, but, uh, psilocybin is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing when used in proper set and setting, just like uh, ayahuasca, just like ibogaine, just like DMT, 5-MeO. But it's not only about set and setting, in my opinion, there's a significant responsibility that needs to be put on the individual and in understanding their mind and their psyche before using something like that. A lot of people want to say it works for everyone or it's safe for everyone, which that is just completely inaccurate. It's not, we understand using... Um, using plant-based medicines like that has to be done with care. And if you already have something where you're bipolar or you're borderline on something, it can really crack an individual. And so it's not for everyone. It's not safe for everyone. And that's quite all right, but it's okay to say that too. Don't try to make it like this, this cure all cause it's not. Yeah. Um, but those things are really important when looking at those. Yeah. The, uh, the heavier psilocybin doses that you do, are those guided or are they you just do them yourself. Um, uh, the last ones we did, I did on my own. I will next time uh, a friend of mine, she does uh, psilocybin ceremonies. I will 150% do it guided with her because I now have, I've done them on my own and now I've done, you know, obviously guided with ayahuasca. I am definitely more of the person that you picture in the woods with the drum that's naked around the fire. That's my vibe. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I know what I need now. I need a guide. I need someone to sit and really be in it with me. Yeah. 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 I got gotcha. you. Mm -hmm. well, that's some fascinating shit. It's neat to hear. Um, and I've had a number of guests on now that have been through similar paths uh, for getting through uh, difficult periods of their life or getting off of prescription drugs or dealing with, uh, you know, PTS or, or any of the... Um, different traumas that they've been through, whether it's war or, or other things. Uh, and so it, it's neat to see a, a game plan and a path that is working for a lot of, uh, 
you know, veterans and, and folks that, that need that, that is outside the realm of big pharma and, and, uh, you know, all the other associated, uh, piggybacks that, that accompany, um, prescription drugs and, and all that shit that people take for the rest of their lives in a lot of cases. But, um, it's a fascinating story. Um, again, I, I appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, and sharing it with us. And it's, uh, it's really neat to hear, um, your story, the way that you tell it and, uh, and the things that you've been through and how you've overcome all of them to, to get to where, you know, you're at now as a successful entrepreneur and a mom. And uh, it's just, it's really, really inspiring and encouraging to see, uh, you have done the things that you've done. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. No worries. I, I like, again, I appreciate you having me on. Like at the end of the day, <sighs> we were at an event yesterday for the defenders of freedom for the TBI uh, treatment. And, um, Hamity said something when he was standing up talking and he's like, listen, a lot of people are looking back at the last 20 years and going like, why, what for, why am I like, why did I lose so-and-so? Why do I feel the way I feel? And, um, you know, give it time. Like this isn't, you know, these feelings might be coming up for people now. They might not have realized that they were struggling before. And, you know, I, I spoke openly at these things and say, look, we just have to ask each other for help and we have to be able to suck up our pride and our ego and, and let people know that we're struggling with things. There's no shame in that. And, um, it doesn't matter if you're a six foot five, you know, like you know, door kicker, you're a human being and you should be able to talk about these things. You should be able to have the hard conversation. You should be able to say something is fucking wrong and I want to fix it and, and not sit in that. So that's, that's what I try to talk about now. And we all have a story. Every story matters. Everyone who's been through something, it matters. It's not unseen. Um, it's not dismissed. It's important. Your story, you matter. And, and the way that you choose to move forward in your life matters. And I believe if you can, just like anybody else, take something really, 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 really shitty and turn it into something that can help others. People will see that. They'll see that what you're doing it for. They'll see that you're authentic. They'll see that you're not only going to see it, you're going to give an example to someone else that you might not realize you're even giving an example to. And that's, and that's the key, right? That's, that's really huge. So, yeah. um, I appreciate that a lot. And, um, you know, I just, for your listeners, it's, it's nothing big, but like, if you want to use, um, we gave you a code because every time we sell something from our company, we donate 20% of the net proceeds to people like uh, heroic hearts or vet solutions, defenders of freedom, boot campaign, you name it. We work with these people to try to help them through our pieces. So there's a code, it's a mic drop 35, use that. And we'll drive all of those donations over to American charities to uh, help those vets and first responders that uh, really need it. Well, that's fantastic. And where, where can people find uh, the website and, and all the products? Well, if Canada doesn't stop you from seeing it, you can 150% <laughs> find it at uh, brassandunity.com. The podcast is uh, the Brass and Unity podcast. We're on YouTube, Spotify, pretty much anywhere else. Um, you can follow me on Instagram while it's still there. Uh, it's Kelsey underscore Sharon. That's also got a lower, lot of warnings, fair warning on that. Um, but yeah, pretty much everything is at brassandunity.com. You can, you can look us up. But uh, if you need help too, please don't hesitate to reach out. That's the other thing when we do these shows. It, yeah, we're a jewelry company. Whenever, yeah, okay, we're in the fashion industry. I get it. But um, I spend the majority of my days fielding phone calls and text messages and direct messages of someone saying, hey, 
I heard about that psilocybin stuff. Where can I go for treatment? Hey, how do I get help? So don't hesitate to reach out to us. We will get to you. We will get you the support you need. Like I said, we're jewelry and sunglasses, but at the end of the day, the purpose is we don't want our friends to die anymore. Nobody needs to feel alone, not in this day and age. And you don't, you don't have to suck it up anymore. Yeah, we're here to help. Absolutely. Well, it's a fantastic message. I encourage you, uh, everybody listening, to go to brassandunity.com and check it out. Support. It's a great, uh, great organization, a great company that, that uh, supports great organizations. And, uh, and thank you again for, uh, for sharing your stories. Anything else you want to add? No, just thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming again. I appreciate it. And, um, to you guys, the listener, as always, uh, I can't thank you guys enough for, uh, the humbling amount of support over the years of, of tuning in show after show. And, and I feel honored and humbled, uh, to be able to, to provide a, a platform to have amazing women like this share their story. So thank you for, for supporting, for tuning in. And until next time, this is Mike drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.